brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Trying to understand what wildly gesticulating, pointing finger means. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the third episode of Brothers of the Serpent, where we discuss all manner of things, all manner of ways, for all time. I am Russ Allen, and this is my brother, Kyle Allen. Glad you're here. Oh yeah. We are in our 10 by 10 by 10 tangent cube of science. <laughs> the fine tangent cube it is in green. That's right, tangent cube in green. And not in the energy-saving way. And somewhere in here is a snake! Yep. <laughs> All right. It's our bro. So, um, briefly went through the news feed. Doesn't look like there's much interesting... Not not anything that uh, I would like, I want to really discuss on the, on the show this time. So, no flat earthers, no moon hoaxers. We just move straight on to discussion topics. Um... And you had something about the end of the last show that you wanted to talk about, so let's go ahead and do that. Okay. Um, so we were discussing the the monomyth, uh, all of the ancient texts being like parables that tell one story while hiding um, some fundamental truth of another story, uh, origins or procession uh, inside the story. And I was at one point in the podcast saying how... I aspired to do the same thing that these sages did in taking some of this ancient wisdom and trying to encode it into lyrics of my songs um, like the, the ancients did with, with their you know, allegories or their <clears throat> archetypal characters. And, um, and it is something that I, that I want to do, but uh, it's, some, it's a new thing for me. So anyway... It's a, it's a lot harder too with... <clears throat> excuse me with lyrics because <clears throat> you, you're it's so short you know you're it's like a like a little tiny sketch really right compared uh, to the ancient texts that have pages and pages and pages of thousands of words so right so uh, when we were mixing down the show i was putting in some bumper music uh that's original and one of the yeah by the way all the music is original yeah we should say that <clears throat> yeah we should say that Mixed, performed, written by me, <laughs> and previously unreleased. So uh, the, the, these songs that you hear will be eventually released on an album. That's right. Um, but you guys are getting them first. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I decided to put one of the tidbits of music that I had in the middle of the podcast. I decided at the very end of the show to just let the whole song play out. And uh, when I was reviewing the whole show, we got to the end of the, of the podcast and Russ was talking about a dream he had where he had seen the pillars of Enoch and it was a very powerful dream and he was able to interpret uh, the the what was written on the pillars and he understood it in the dream understood like all of this lost 
this entire massive lost civilization, all the people gone from some cataclysm. It was just very, very powerful. And then at the end, this song that I had written called Gone plays all the way through. And I'm listening to the lyrics of the song, which I wrote about people, two people in, in particular who have passed away. But the way I wrote the lyrics perfectly matched all of these different elements of what we had been talking about in the podcast and things that we think about all the time, like the, um, the gods leave and they promise to return. There's parts of the lyrics that talk about a, a promise to return. Um, there's certain phrases that sound like they're describing procession or the great year. Yep. Uh, in terms of, but one of the lyric lines is, uh, long are my days. Right, so the gods lived a long time, and and a day in the in the in the great year is seventy two years long, which is the average lifespan of, of a human. Right, long are my so days. So long are my days, and I just like every every line of the lyrics matched perfectly with some element of this this big and story. And there's I'd hope you'd stay, but the yep. wind swept you away. Yep, the yep. wind swept you away, and then for the gods <laughs> returning, like I, I thought of, uh, um, like the Aztecs uh, when. You know what the Quetzalcoatl or yeah, whatever. Yeah, they, the Aztecs and the Inca waiting for Biracocha and Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. yeah, and you know he had promised to return, and they had waited so long, and but they still remembered him, and then uh, even to the point that when they thought Hernan Cortez was him, they just gave him the keys to the city and just like here, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and then their entire civilization was then wiped out. Man, we could talk about that too. Yeah. So I like a part of the song is saying. After, you know, I, I promised to return, but when I finally do, the time took you away. Yep. And uh, anyway, it was just really, really cool that I, I realized, like, man, I was already doing that in one way. Like, I didn't do it intentionally, but they they, they fit perfect. How's that for a synchronicity? Yeah. You and, synchromystics out there. <laughs> and we had also talked about, in the, in the last podcast, about, uh, briefly, we touched on the... the Four levels of language, which was something that Russ had read to me. I don't. Uh, we'll, we'll get to it at some point um, in a future podcast, probably. But it was about these these sages that had spoke about these four different levels of language, and they were saying that that most people speak only and understand only the first level, the top level. Yeah. They they understand the top level, but even in speaking that top level, they are also speaking in the top level three. Be, yeah. Top level being surface. Like yeah. so they understand the surface level of language, yeah. but they're also speaking in the lower three levels, the three deeper level yeah. that, that someone who has the knowledge can understand. Yeah. So it was interesting. I was just like, man, was I writing in one of the sub subsurface levels, uh, not even knowing it, you know, and only realizing, well, yeah, it according to those sages, you always are right. Yeah. So that so, was, that was just yeah. really cool. Um, we discovered one of the deeper meanings. Yeah. And so now I love podcasting, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, but that was it. Yeah, that um, was really cool. The The thing I really wanted to to discuss in this podcast is uh, the dating methods that are used um, in archaeology uh, mainly. But Russ knows a, a pretty good deal about it, and I wanted to him to explain some of that. All right. Prepare for rent. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Go, snake bro. <laughs> okay, so the, 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 the main type of dating that we always hear about is carbon dating. Um, and what that basically means, it's called, it's, called a, it's called cosmogenic dating. 
which basically means that the uh, the type of carbon that we're using to date is cosmogenically generated. Okay, and so to explain that, basically, you every star is a you know like like our sun has a fusion process going on within it, and it's generating all. It starts with hydrogen, but it generates all these uh, elements using fusion. You know, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, everything, helium, and up to iron. Okay. Uh, once it reaches iron, iron does not, um, when iron fuses, it will fuse, but it does not, it doesn't, the, the fusion process with iron doesn't release more energy than it takes to fuse, which is what all the, the ones below that do. So iron actually begins to dampen the fusion fire of the sun. So iron is the ash of stars. Okay. So basically as the star continues to burn, it develops more and more iron within it. And that iron slowly sort of rains or falls to the core of the star. Uh, but once there's enough of that iron ash mixed in with all the fusion materials or whatever, it actually, there's enough of it to begin to block the, uh, the fusion energy from being able to pass from one, two fusing atoms to another atom to make it fuse. So it basically starts ca ca casting shadows in there and that will eventually cool the star enough to where there's no longer enough heat and explosive energy from the fusion to keep the core of the star uh, and this is weird. I know people are like, why are you talking about star fusion when we're going dating? <laughs> Trust me, we'll get there. <clears throat> anyway, eventually what happens, no, this is not a tangent. I know, I know. You have just, to go here. Yeah. I'm so joking. Eventually what happens is the iron core of the star will collapse. It, it, it undergoes like a catastrophic implosion, um, which that would be a nova or a supernova, depending on the size of the, the mass of the star. So anyway, once enough iron has, has developed in the star, that will cool it enough to where the heat can no longer keep it expanded against its own force of gravity. So the core will collapse. That implosion like results in a shockwave that blows all the external material off the star uh, in a supernova explosion. In, some, in, in that explosion, there are areas, small areas of the explosion that are so powerful, even relative to the rest of the explosion, that it will kick out, it will, it will tear molecules and atoms apart and like toss out like individual subatomic particles at, at with ridiculous accelerations. Like, so even though it, you'll have a mass, a massy particle, like a photon or a neutron, um, which are, which have a lot of mass for, you know, for small particles, but they will be thrown out at almost light speed. And so for something with mass, when you go close to light speed, you're what, what happens instead of as you approach light speed, you're, you're instead of continuing to go faster, what happens is your mass begins to increase, right? So sometimes these single tiny subatomic particles can be thrown off of a star with the same like equivalent inertia as like a 90 mile an hour fastball. Now think about that. A tiny subatomic particle having the same impact strength if it hit you as, as if you'd been hit by a 90 mile an hour fa fastball thrown by a professional pitcher, right? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> okay. So if it hit you, you'd be like, Poof, oh. <laughs> you know, it'd knock you out. So I don't want to play quantum ball. <laughs> I don't want to play quantum baseball. <laughs> so, <laughs> so these particles are known at when they, when they impact earth, they, they, so they come, they go burning across space, like, you know, hauling ass all fat with this, with this, um, uh, relativistic energy or relativistic mass. And they just, they, they just fly straight, you know, until they hit something. And, and a lot of them will, uh, you know, Earth gets hit by these all the time. And we call them cosmic rays when they, when they do. And that's because there was a misunderstanding when we first were noticing them. And that's because they do kind of look like 
some kind of weird ray when they impact. Because what, like, imagine you got a Maserati, all right, and you're on the Autobahn and you've got the the, the gas punched to the floor and you're going 215 miles an hour just out there on that empty freeway. That's fine. But when you start getting close to a city, if you don't slow down it's, <laughs> and you get into all this traffic, what happens? Wham! You start hitting cars, bam, bam, bam. And those cars, because of your inertia, they get thrown forward and they hit other cars and start yeah. smashing it. So that's what happens when a cosmic ray, a single tiny subatomic particle comes into the upper atmosphere of Earth. It begins to slam into the, 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 the particles of our atmosphere, which then kicks those things off, tears molecules and atoms apart and throws them in. So you get this massive like uh kind of like a cone almost yeah there's a cone of like just particles flying and slamming into each other that will all often extend all the way to the surface okay of the planet it'll burn all the way you know in that process of all these particles running into each other because of this single asshole flying really fast okay this is where you develop uh unstable in other words radioactive um isotopes of otherwise normal elements so we that's how we get carbon 14 okay so carbon 14 carbon normally is not 14 it's like uh, eight i think but the 14 basically means it has a bunch of other particles added to its nucleus because of this cosmogenic uh thing happening so it, like a couple of neutrons and a proton or two get added to its nucleus because of the excess energy from this cosmic ray Chemically, it's exactly the same as carbon, so it will attach to oxygen and generate and turn it eventually turn into CO2. And CO2 is what plants breathe. So it will then join the carbon cycle of the of, of the life cycle of Earth. Okay. So <laughs> CO2 dating, and because it's it's unstable, it's radioactive, it has a half-life, right? So it will decay eventually. Now we because of the because of the, the Heisenberg uncertainty uh, uncertainty principle or whatever. Um, you can't ever know when an individual radioactive uh, radioactive atom will decay, but you can point to a bunch of them and know statistically how many of them will decay over a certain amount of time. That's the half-life. So the idea of carbon dating is when something is alive, when uh, any organic thing is alive, it's constantly pulling in carbon, right? It's mm -hmm. pulling in carbon as, as like we don't we don't breathe it, but we eat it with the plants because the plants breathe it, right? So the plants breathe the carbon in and some of that carbon will be carbon 14, the radioactive kind. We eat the plants or whatever. So this carbon 14 from this, these cosmic rays gets put evenly, spread out evenly into all life on earth. So the theory is, is that once life, a particular life form dies, it ceases to pull in carbon. So the, that, that is the amount of carbon it has in it. And then that carbon begins to decay. So from that point, point on, the theory is that you can then time how long it's been since it I died based see. on how much yeah. of the carbon is decayed. Because it's no right? longer taking in any new ones. Right. So, there okay. are so many problems with that, even though it's a cool idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool so the, idea, guys. Right. Great idea, guys, but <laughs> lots of problems. Number one, we're not single-celled life forms. Okay. And if you're anything bigger than a single-celled life forms, you have millions of single-celled life forms in you that aren't dead when you die, and they are continuing a carbon cycle. True. Yeah. Okay. So if I keel over and die right now, yes, myself as a single functioning being ceases to pull in carbon, but all the stuff that's in me that's still alive, all the, 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 the gut flora and the, you know, plus everything that starts to come over to eat me, like flies start laying eggs and everything, that all has carbon cycles still going. So it doesn't really, 
So it's not accurate to the day. Or... Right. So this is why whenever you see a carbon date, they'll give you a plus or minus 1,000 years, 1,600 right. years, whatever. But even that, this is the main problem with the theory. And this is a physics problem, okay? The physics problem with the theory is that the influx of carbon rays, I'm sorry, carbon rays, wow, <laughs> cosmic rays, the influx of cos cosmic ray particles into the Earth's atmosphere is, we have, we have this average amount based on the, the beginning of Earth's life to however long, in other words, across the age of the universe, you can say this average amount of cosmic ray particles will impact any given planet at any given point. Right, right. But that, you can't that's use a, that, yeah. you can't use that for any given day. Like the problem with that, you know, like. So that's I, a, but, but that's a, you were saying like on average over the whole universe or whatever. So you're talking about way, way longer periods than we're carbon dating for. Right. Not only that, but it's like, so the, the age of the universe right now is theorized to be about 14 billion years. So over the, the past 14 billion years, age of the universe, you can say that an average number of cosmic ray particles will impact any given object in the universe. Okay. Right. Based on this. A bunch of other physics that basically says the universe is homogenous. Okay, so right. it, there's a whole lot of assumptions that go into this. <laughs> like the fact but that... if you're if you're trying to date something that's say uh, twelve thousand years old, right? So here's the problem: the dating window for carbon fourteen, which is based on carbon 14's half life, which is uh, the half life allows us to date up to about sixty to maybe to hundred thousand years max. After hundred thousand years, the car there's no not enough carbon fourteen left because of decay. For you to count, okay? Right. So, the entire age of the universe is a lot different than 100,000 years. Right. In the same way that, like, I could say, well, you know, I, I drank an average of three cans of soda today, right? But what if I drank all three cans of those soda at lunch? So, if you looked at any given hour of my life during that day and decided that I was drinking an average of a certain amount of soda during all that period based on the, no, it would be wrong because I drank all the soda at one spot and then the no soda the rest of the day. Right. That's so cosmic ray are caused by supernova explosions, definite events in space that are nearby us or whatever. Right. Or I mean, they don't have to be nearby because a, a cosmic ray particle can come from some long dead, extremely distant star. But the point is, is that there will be more of them sometimes than others, especially ones that are close. Right. We know in historical times, because, you know, the Chinese recorded over a thousand years ago, a bright supernova in the sky. And while they're seeing the light from that supernova, the Earth was also getting bombarded by all the cosmic ray particles coming from right. it, because they would kind of be together. So, here's the point. <clears throat> Wait, can I add uh, something? Yeah. Uh, I was reading that the solar activity right now is at a minimum. It's like, they're, the sun oh, yeah, is just yes. like, That's right. the sun is just blank. There's no sunspots. And what they said in there was, while, because the sun was blank, and we, so we don't have all these crazy magnetic, additional the magnetic, solar, the solar flux, solar flux and yeah. wind and whatever, is very light right now. So we are uh, far more uh, vulnerable or getting vulnerable, bombarded by, yeah. Getting bombarded by cosmic rays. So, so there could be, additionally, like there, the sun could have been calm or super calm for like, you know, a thousand years and, and then it could have just had crazy activity for the next 10,000 years. Absolutely. Right. And you can't average so you that can't out. Average that out if you, okay. Right. So you have, so you have the, you have an average number of cosmic ray particles that may hit, get hit any given object over the course of the universe, but that doesn't count any local effects that may stop or, or may impede or not impede those cosmic ray particles from hitting it. And that was what we have at the sun, the helio sheath, which is basically a shield around the entire solar system caused by the solar wind outfluxing from the sun blocks a lot of cosmic rays from impacting the planets. 
So when our sun has tons of sunspots and it's throwing crap out there and it's flipping out and exploding everywhere, cosmic rays are getting blocked a lot. Okay, right. they're getting they're getting de uh, deflected. When it's really calm, like it has been for the past year, a uh, couple of years, there's not a lot of blockage. So cosmic rays are are hitting us a lot more. And that you know, there's cloud formation may ca be caused by cosmic rays. And like so, this is really interesting to me. Storm cells, like when you get a crazy thunderstorm that just seems to come out of nowhere and it's just boom and all this energy and stuff. That was one cosmic ray particle impacting the atmosphere, causing that storm. So basically, that storm is the is the result of a supernova somewhere way back in time, really far away. <laughs> That's freaking Okay, out. and so you're like that tiny particle from that supernova, and all that energy that the storm puts out. Yeah, yeah, that so, tells you how how powerful supernovas are. But yeah. anyway, so at your next wedding, you know, when <laughs> when the storm just busts out of nowhere, you can be like, "Damn, cosmic rays!" <laughs> yeah, you can be like, "That's right, the star exploded for my wedding." <laughs> all right. So the point the the point I'm getting to here is that. Cosmogenic particle dating is a good idea, but it isn't really workable because at the time that that animal died that you're, that you're trying to date, there could have been a massive influx of cosmic ray particles because of sun activity or because of nearby sol uh, explosions or whatever. And so that thing may have a lot more carbon-14 in it just because of the amount of it that was in the atmosphere when it died, which would throw your dating off. You would think it was a lot younger than it was because you would read it and be like, wow, it has a lot of carbon-14, right? And and you would say, well, maybe it's only 500 years old when it's actually like 6,000 years old, but it was just had a ton of carbon-14 carbon yeah, in the air. Or for example, something something dies when, when there's very few uh, cosmic rays impacting. Right. And then something that was alive at the same point lives on for another, you know, say 50 years and, and there's tons and tons of impacts. And so it gets loaded up and the two mm -hmm. things die very close to each other. Right. And their dating is like, well, this one's right. way older than this one. Right. The first one died. They think it's like 10,000 years old. The second one that died, they think it's very young. Right. Yeah. Even though they died right next to each other. So that's the thing. It's, it doesn't really work. Okay. I mean, and some people will say, well, you know, we're only working in this period of, of a hundred thousand years. That isn't big, that big of a deal, but it is a big deal when you're talking about people and civilizations yeah when you're trying to just having the having it off 10 years can be really important if you're trying to figure out when wh who was doing what where with the civilization you know right i mean like this is the, so so when they're digging around ancient walls that have massive blocks or whatever and they're trying to dig underneath the blocks and get some piece of organic material from beneath it so that they could say well this block was set down this organic thing was trapped beneath it and so we can date that thing and kind of get an idea of when this block was put here. And does that really work? I mean, not really. I mean, you know, it, it's accepted science right now, but it's it's accepted. But people also know that it's it's iffy. But if we, any textbook you read will treat it as like gospel. So yeah. so that's the problem with with carbon dating. Now there's another type of dating called beryllium ten. Okay. Uh, beryllium 10 has, has been recently used to date. So uh, it's a whole cosmogenic thing. Again, it's, it's generated by cosmic rays coming in, but this type of material will end up embedded in various types of sedimentary and, um, uh, metamorphic and, uh, not, not igneous, but the, the abyssal stone, like granite. Okay. Of course, the one I pick is not. <laughs> right, it's not igneous. <laughs> I, it may be. I, I'm not sure. I, I know it's abyssal, and I know it's granite and limestone and stuff like that. So basically, the way this works is, uh, if you've if you've gone to a mountain and you started cutting rock out of it, like out of a quarry, 
then as soon as you expose that rock face that has not been exposed for a long time because it's been inside the mountain, you know, you, so you cut it and now it's exposed, beryllium tin begins to be embedded in it. Yeah. So you can sort of date how long it's been since that face was exposed. Yeah. There's another type of dating that does the same thing that is called, uh, it has, I can't remember the name of it, but it has to do with light. So you can, there's, there's certain types of tiny, tiny, like, um, damage to the crystal in rock that's yeah. caused by like, by, by, you know, by light patina? particles. It's not patina. It's actually, you have to look, you have to use an electron microscope or like some very powerful microscope to look at the tiny little crystals and, and you'll see these little scars in them that is caused by being exposed to direct sunlight. Wow. Okay. Like a, a, a really fast particle goes burning through the crystal and like actually cuts a trough through it. And you can see that with it. Okay. So that, that you can see how long it's been exposed and how deep those go also. So like you expose it and, and those, those scars begin to sort of get deeper and deeper into the yeah. rock so they can kind of count them or whatever. Anyway, those two things are used sometimes to date stone, but beryllium tin has a minimum dating time of 10 million years. So like, <laughs> I mean, you're already way past any kind of like uh, conventional idea of dating human worked stuff. So geologists can use this to say, well, this, this cliff face was exposed 20 million years ago, but yeah. you're not going to be able to use it on, on Saxe <laughs> Ain't no sexy woman gonna be getting on brilliant tin. I'll tell you what, sexy woman is young, <laughs> too young for that brilliant. So, uh, yeah. So that, that's my problem with with those types of dating. Now, if you go into geological dating, uh, there's a lot of interesting ways to date it, like the um, the diatoms, which I find fascinating. Yeah. But uh, again, like you have to say, well, how do they know how old these diatom uh, species are? Because basically. It's through Di context, right? Yeah, diatoms are little, like, single-celled creatures that build these fantastic silicon shells around themselves. So they yeah. become, they make themselves into little gems. There's tons of pictures uh, of yeah, diatoms just, on Google. It's They're fascinating. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Look up, look up diatoms on Google. and they're, they're, Every single one of them builds a very unique crystal shield spaceship for itself to, to go around in. Yeah, and I don't know if any of you have ever used diatomaceous earth to like kill some yes. insects around your house, but it's like this white powder. It's basically a bunch of these shattered it's, shells yeah. and they're ridiculously sharp. It's the it's the remnant shells of, of diatoms. And yeah, the crystals are so sharp that it like will kill bugs just by cutting them up, cut up their exoskeletons. So anyway, diatoms are very recognizable like it's you could okay the here's the purple square guy right and they're the purple square guy we know has like he's he lives today and he has been around since for the past 200 years like what about he, the white giblet with the spikies the white giblet with the spikies died out 1500 years ago but he was alive for two million years before that right oh, so well, this the, white giblet is taking a bite out of the purple square wait, guy there should be no white giblets left <laughs> so uh so that's the diatoms are interesting in that way that they're they're all unique like 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 the ones of the same species are exactly the same, but each individual species is totally unique from all the others in the way that they build their shells. Right. So it's easy to sort of see, like you can go anywhere and get a collection of earth, of, of sand or soil or whatever, and put it under a microscope and find diatoms in it, right? And this is how a lot of people, uh, some, some people who specialize in this can date that soil level or that strata based on the diatoms that are in it. But I always wonder, like, how do you know when the diatoms were you know how do you know how old the diatoms are i i, I didn't <laughs> didn't do any research on this but i assumed based on one um i was reading some archaeological thing where they were using the diatoms in a riverbed yeah to do the dating and Quet i was i was assuming that they did it by context through uh 
geological known geological occurrences. It's and possible stuff like that. because that the other problem I have with it, with geological dating is the strata dating, and the strata dating is all assumptions based on strata counting and uniformitarianism. uniformitarianism. Yeah, which is a long word that basically means everything happens all really slowly. Uh, it's uh, the idea of uniformitarianism. It, the, what's the tenet? It's like uh, one drop of water, one grain of sand at a time. Yeah, and also uh, no. No forces in the past that we do not see at work today, right? Yeah, no, um, what is it? Processes. No processes yeah. that we cannot observe happening today. Okay, that's not the way they put it. Right. They put basically what they're saying is, is if we don't see it happening today, then you can't assume that it happened in the past. Right. Which is, it's crap. Like that's a terrible yeah. way to. But that was that that for a long time for the you know for the previous like previous to maybe twenty or thirty years ago, uh, for the previous 150 years before that was that was the method for geology and like this is why uh this is how they ended up getting billions of years for the age of the earth because you know they were they would count strata and they would say so based on the way we see soil and stuff being laid down now how long would this take how long would this layer take to build and it, you know you would estimate well that would take a uh, hundred thousand hundred fifty thousand years so they would start counting the strata like that and you're getting lower and lower and you're in the millions you know tens of million hundred million thirty you know three hundred million four hundred million or whatever that's how they get the ages of stuff but it's based on here's another one of our terms stacks of assumptions yeah <laughs> right <laughs> you just got a whole huge stack of assumptions stacks yeah, giant stack of assumptions and like the very top thing is your declaration and it's based on all these assumptions beneath it. And none of those assumptions are being checked. So <clears throat> that's really uh, interesting. What other, are there any other, uh, say, archaeological dating methods that... Context, like you were talking about. So like the, the, if you, uh, they'll date things by context, which is, is terrible because... Stacks of assumptions. Right. It's, it's what basically, yeah. So like they see this pot shard, right? And they, f they assume that they know what that pot shard comes from. Or what? Or they'll look at it and they'll say, okay, so it was done using a kiln, which means that it has to be from this date because we know that previous to that nobody had any kilns, right? Okay, so right. it's all, I mean, dude, it's terrible. Like, the other thing in uniformitarianism is it bleeds over into archaeology in the form of linear development. Right. Okay. Uh, and so we have this, even though it's easily disproven, you could say, look at Rome, Rome fell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> After Rome fell, like there was a dark and people were like, well, China was doing great. Yeah, well, but it, there's up. The point is, is there's ups and downs. There isn't a linear development anywhere, and you can't point to an overall global linear development either. So, uh, anyway, like our past two hundred years, like, is hockey stick like in terms of development. You know, right. <laughs> so it's not linear. It's like you you can see that it goes up and down and. Uh, and if, if people are right about climate change or if a giant comet comes and destroys us, which is totally possible, then we'll drop way back down to almost nothing. So, yeah. so that is, that's, that's one of the main reasons why we, we ask all these questions about how, how do we know what we know right? Uh, and, and what happened in the past or what could have happened. And if we, if we don't use stacks of assumptions and if we, if we really read or if we turn the assumptions back into questions, back into questions, yeah. then, then it starts to look like, man, you know, maybe we should. Uh, you start paying attention to some other some other things and right. think about. I can give I can give an ex future. excellent example of the consequences of things like linear development and uniformitarianism. I'm sure everybody's familiar with ancient aliens, and we're probably running close on time here. Um, 
but I'll get this out. So yeah, we're all right. Most people are, uh, everybody's familiar with ancient aliens and the concept basically, you know, ancient alien theorists, you know, so that these people have theorized this theory that like, that some point in humans past, uh, some other extraterrestrial being showed up and gave us some help. We're like, hey, you know, here's how you like do stuff. Okay. Archaeologists hate it. Like, they just, they're like, oh my God, it's so stupid. You know, it's ridiculous. Why do they hate it? You know, because they it doesn't fit their theories or whatever. They, they were like, well, you know, these people did this. But the point is, is that the reason that theory came about is because most normal people look at some of these extremely advanced buildings from these extremely ancient times and their entire education tells them about linear development and humans were not capable of doing that at that time. So they are like, well, they must have had help. Yeah. Okay. That's a great point. So the whole, the whole concept of like the paleo contact ancient alien theory comes about because of archaeologists insisting that they know what the technological development was of a culture before they even look at what they did. Right. In, in other words, they pre they, they assume butt flaps before they even right. look at the structures. They, they pre built. yeah. So when you're going to look at a pyramid, they they based on what what time they think the pyramid was built, they pre-assume the level of development of that culture before they even look at the structure. So when you begin to find that the structure is like incredibly advanced, and you're telling me these people didn't even it's have all a coincidence, wheel. right? These people didn't have the wheel. They didn't know about pie. They didn't have you know, and I mean pie in the mathematical sense. They, I'm sure they knew about they knew actually, about cake. That's right. <laughs> cake is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so that's why you get that because that's people people are looking at the pyramid. They're like, okay, this is not possible for somebody who didn't have iron and didn't have any math, you know. So it must be aliens. And an archaeologist is like, oh my god, you're dumb. And, and I'm like, no, you're dumb, dude. That's the, <laughs> they think that because of you. <laughs> that's really great. Well, uh, we're gonna take a quick break here, and we'll come back and uh, continue on this conversation. This is very. I was on a roll. Damn it. Yeah. Well, hey, you want to keep rolling, bro? <laughs> no, no, Just bro. Go. I, I need a break. I can cut this. I can cut this later. Nope. You know. Check, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank you. Snake bro. Welcome back to Brothers of the Serpent, where we were talking about cosmic rays and the archaeological dating game, and uh, one of the best methods is to dig up that skeleton and take it to lunch. <laughs> Dating mummies. <laughs> anyway, Russ was uh, talking... What did you do with that mummy? Well, it was a little dry. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Russ was uh, talking in the last segment about um, various types of dating. And uh, we were going to make a few more points about that, talk about another one. So go ahead, Russ. Yeah, so there, there is a, a kind of dating that I do think is... Um, is accurate, uh, and it's called it's called hydrogen, uh, or sorry, uranium thorium helium dating. So basically, this this works on the same principle of of radioactive decay, but it's uranium. So uh, there's plenty of uranium here. It doesn't need to be generated by cosmic rays. So basically, this one isn't cosmogenically generated. So we're not basing this on the number of cosmic rays impacting the atmosphere. There's just uranium spread out. Uh, ubiquitously in all rock everywhere on the planet. Okay, so you can look at certain types of crystals in rock. Uh, I think this one is agate, uh, but you look at the crystal and the uranium decay will throw off a heavy, you know, radioactive particle, a, 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 a neutron, and it will, you know, burn through the <laughs> through the crystal and make a, 
a, a, a scar in it that you can see with uh, specific uh, uh, types of microscopes. And I think they use like, a, it's really complicated. They put it in a gas chamber and they hit it with a laser and a bunch of other stuff. You have, you have to have a physicist to do it and he has to be a really good one. And it will be machinery that he built himself basically to do it, okay? So this is why they don't use it because physicists don't care if you don't like the dates that they give you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and their dates are going to be as accurate as they can get them based on the physics, not on your idea of when this culture yeah. was. Yeah, they don't care about <laughs> what you think about culture <laughs> and, and contextual dating. They're just like, yeah, but this is the date. Right. So. And the, the methods I used are based on very accepted scientific principles of yeah. physics, so get the hell out of here. Yeah. And <laughs> taking that physicist on a date is not going to help his That's, dating method either. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were going to make another point about um, uh, the calibrating of carbon-14 dating. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so... so most of the time now, if you see a, a carbon-14 date given in any text or whatever, they'll give you the uh, the error plus or minus so many years, but then they'll tell you that it's calibrated, right? So it'll be like, it'll be the carbon-14 date, it's dated to this time, plus or minus this many years, CA, calibrated. The calibration basically means that as they continue to find out information about the environment of the time, in other words, anything that may affect the number of cosmic rays, how many, how much C14 was in the, was in the environment. They add that to the calibration, but <laughs> it's like anything else. You never know if you have it all. So the data is never going to be accurate. So, uh, and even then they're, they're not looking at, they're not looking at space. You can't, you can't, <clears throat> there's nothing on earth that's going to tell us about space weather of the past, right? You might be able to find evidence of whether the sun was flaring here or not, whether it was, you know, so where you could say maybe it was blocking more cosmic rays than it was before, but you're not going to know about supernovas unless yeah. they were recorded by uh, ancient astronomers. And even then, you know, maybe they didn't get them all. Or if you're looking at really old dates when pe no one was astronomers, you know, uh, anyway, the point is, is that space weather is not something you can tell by earth evidence. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're never going to know. So can you, can you give me an example of where you think, in your opinion, carbon dating is good and useful, or do you just distrust it? Like, what 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 is the level of? I would in your say opinion, that like it's it's usefulness. Okay, it's useful in terms of giving you a general idea, but but the problem is is that we're always using it to date things based that that have to do with with human uh, development with human cultures and stuff because it, you know, because it doesn't really go back that far, 60 to a hundred thousand years. So if I date something and I get, if I date a piece of pottery and I get a date of 90,000 years plus or minus uh, 1200 years, well, that gives me a sort of a ballpark, but that doesn't tell me whether this piece of pottery was made by a culture that lived in this place a thousand years before or after some other one, because I've got an error of 1200 years there. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it doesn't really work for building this a very detailed story of human history because there's too much error. There's too much, you know, and and <clears throat> another th another problem is that there's a lot of different methods. I'm not going to go into this really in detail, but there's a lot of different methods for doing C14 dating. There's, you know, and there's a lot of ways to really mess it up. Like you can contaminate the the the. And this bothers me because they're like, oh, you know, the the the, the specimen was contaminated. I'm like, well, if it's that easy to contaminate, 
it was just sitting out there in the open for 10,000 years. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, what, what, what is contamination here? You know? So hmm. I, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and like, you know, when they talk about like, so we found this piece of organic matter, like a piece of wood, say there's a tiny little sliver of wood that they found. That they're going to use that to date because that piece of wood, uh, was underneath a giant block that, or it was smashed between two giant blocks in some ancient structure. They're assuming that that piece of wood, number one, died shortly before it was laid down on that piece of block. It could be a very old piece of wood at the time of the building. You know, yeah. they don't know. It, it, I'm just saying there's just too many problems with this. With this, I mean, you know, and if it was if it was a piece of driftwood and it was in the ocean, then the salt would leach out all that carbon, you know. Hmm. Not the salt, I'm sorry. The, the, the little marine creatures that need the carbon to build their little shells, they're going to get it all out of there. I mean, so, but yeah. They, but, but there could also be a lot of creatures living in the piece of wood that are continuing that are the carbon cycle. Continuing the carbon cycle. Exactly. Yeah. And and the piece of wood, seriously, there's like, there's olive trees right now that are like 2,000 years old mm -hmm. um, in the Mediterranean. Right. And a lot of the wood on the olive trees, the trunks are massive. They're right. as big around as a car. And a lot of the wood on them is just dead. Right. And who knows how long that wood has been dead. Right. But you could go and cut down that tree and get a piece of the dead wood off of the trunk and make some carving out of it. Yep. And it's and yeah, your right. your culture is like two thousand years older than that piece of dead wood right. that has been preserved by the life of the tree and of course you know right insects they'll, and they'll date that thing they'll date your culture based on that piece of wood and be think, and think you're only eight hundred years old right yeah so yeah that, there's there's all kinds of problems with it I I don't think it's something we should completely throw out because it does give us ballparks right yeah, yeah. but. I, You're talking about. I, I almost 100% completely disagree with using it to date structures. You cannot carbon date stone, and the only way that they can really try to get structure dates with carbon dating is by trying to find some associated piece of organic material that's jammed underneath, or you know, in some places they say, well, if if it's here, it must have been there. In other words, no one could have gotten it there after the structure was built. Right, but they got it out. Right. I mean, the assumptions are just too, like, what if somebody completely dismantled the structure to do some repairs and then put it all back together? You know, which could be very well the case in a lot of Egyptian stuff where the structures were repurposed multiple times by many different pharaohs. Right. Um, so, so, yeah. So, so, really, their best bet is finding the latest thing. That's right. You know, in the, underneath the structure when, when that doesn't tell you who built it. Right. I would, I would almost, this is my go-to thing, I assume... Not assume really, but I, I just I, my my sort of first uh, inclination is to think that whatever dates they're getting from carbon fourteen dating of organic stuff around structures is going to be from the most recent usage of that structure by some ancient culture, not right. the original building of it or whatever, but the most recent. Because like there's this concept called uh, intrusive usage, right? Or yeah. or intrusive. I mean, intrusive burials is usually what they say, but. <coughs> So in the Andes down down south in South America, you have this thing where there are obviously, and I mean that the 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 Inca and the Aztecs told the you know the Spaniards the Europeans this when they when they came there that like when you know the Europeans are like okay, whoa, uh, did you guys build that that up there? And they were like, no, that was the giants or that was the gods or whatever, right? So they spread up told them that they didn't build it, but they had been using it, right? 
and you could tell that they had sort of built onto some places or whatever. Right. But you can easily see the difference in the stonework. You got giant, massive, like yeah, beautiful. the archaeologists are like, "Pish posh, <laughs> right, you right. built this." <laughs> That's right. And they'll get mad at us, at, uh, you know, at like alternative uh, people in archaeology for saying like, "No, some some more ancient, advanced culture that was not the Aztecs or the or the Inca built this structure." And they will call us racists, you know, trying to say that we are, uh, you know, like uh, belittling their abilities or whatever. I'm like, no, I'm actually believing what they said. You're calling them liars. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> they said we didn't build that. You know, somebody else made that happen. So, <laughs> hey, I'm just hey, believing them. Hey, well, uh, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? Careful. Oh. What difference <laughs> at this point does it make? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's that's uh, the the quick rough lowdown on the on the dating stuff. Just uh, stay away from those mummies. Yep. <laughs> Lots of cocaine mummies there. <laughs> Don't date ancient chicks. That's right. Especially ones that like that like blow. <laughs> yeah. You know about the cocaine mummies, right? No, no, no. no. The, uh, okay, so the uh, uh, German archaeology team got permission from Egyptian authorities to date. Like they're, they're almost a hundred, there was a, almost a hundred non-royal, you know, sort of just like they were wealthy citizens or whatever, merchants and bureaucrats and sh mummies of people like that. Okay. Just a whole bunch of non-royal mummies from various places in Egypt. They got permission to sort of do all these tests and dating on them. And they found tobacco and cocaine in almost all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's important because tobacco... And cocaine only grow in South America. Hmm. So how did Egyptian mummies, ancient Egyptian mummies, get American plants? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is Well, that first of all, the pharaoh had a giant party. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm inviting everyone. He's like, lay down, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the first thing that comes to mind is that... that um, the climate could have been, you know, way different. Yeah, but it's then. it's actually it's it's actually the soil. I mean, like you can't, as far as I know, and you could be right that that maybe those plants were. I'm not saying I'm not. All I'm no, saying you, is that's no, the first I've never, thing that I never comes even thought of that. Like I always have, have, have assumed that like those plants only grow here, you know, and, and they've never grown anywhere else because uh, of soil conditions. And I know that that's true, but you're right. The soil conditions could have been such that they grew in the, in the old. That's world. what those huge light bulbs they're holding are. It's the poppy plant. <laughs> <laughs> the light bulbs are from when they were tweaking on Coke. They're like, bing, got a big idea, guys. Let's build a giant pyramid. Look, let's put the cord that's attached to this lotus flower and plug it into this weird little <laughs> column thing. That looks like a, Man, a go to bed a magnet. And, and then we'll be able to see in the dark in this pyramid <laughs> to carve this us doing this. Well, you know what? You know what was claimed? Actually, they claimed a lot of people claimed that that the Egyptians or I'm sorry, the Germans had contaminated the the the, the samples, and people were like contaminated them with coke and tobacco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, are you saying that the the German archaeology students were doing like body shots off the mummies? <laughs> like, come on, man. <laughs> Just come on. <laughs> Germans are crazy, but they're not that crazy. <laughs> I love you, Germans. I'm, you know, I'm kidding. You stole my cartouche. <laughs> you should try this cocaine. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 
what's the next topic? Are we don't, I think we've gone through all of that. I mean, there's plenty of tangents on that I could go off on too, but uh, I think you had some other topics you want to go to. Uh, all I, we were, we were talking about the 411 stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, there's, well, there's been this thing in the news that we were looking at recently about this plane. Um, there, uh, a student from, I think it's you know, in Michigan, rented a Cessna. So it's a, you know, it's a single prop, but uh, you can get four or five people in it airplane and he was an experienced pilot or whatever. He rented this Cessna in Michigan and he was supposed to fly to somewhere else in, in Michigan. And the plane crashed in Canada the next day out of fuel. So it basically just flew on autopilot until it ran out of fuel and just kind of slowly went down and crashed in the, in the boondocks in Canada. And when they, when rescuers went to the site of the crash, there was no pilot and no sign of any pilot. Like there were no footprints in the snow. So the plane was empty when it crashed. Now the plane had an autopilot, but it's the extremely rudimentary kind of autopilot that does not take off flight. So you, in other words, you have to be in there. You have to take the, you have to manually lift the plane off the ground, get it up to cruising speed. And then you can put it, put the autopilot on and it'll basically keep it on course, but that's it. So he disappeared in flight. Yeah. My first thought was like, well, you know, he may have just like bailed out of the plane for whatever reason. Right. So that's possible, but uh, the, there are problems with it is that like this plane doesn't have the, some planes have this uh, like a punch out door in the ceiling, like a, like a, like a, you know, like a roof. What do you call them? Like a skylight thing you can punch yeah. out. And then that's how you get out is you jump out this, this right. hole in the, in, the, in the roof. Well, this doesn't have one of those. Okay. It basically, the only way you can get in and out of the plane is by opening the doors on the side. And that's really hard when the plane is at, at speed, which is, I think it requires at least 170 miles per hour to fly. So at minimum, you're going 170. And if you've ever tried to open a car door when you're going 70, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're like, yeah. So think of another hundred miles an hour added onto that. And I, I doubt that you could leap out of the plane. I mean, uh, it, it could have been done. Yeah. I, I think it's possible that it could have been done, but it would have been very difficult, especially like to leave no evidence of, of that. Right. right. <clears throat> um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's just very strange. He was a PhD student in information theory. Uh, he was never had any suicidal tendencies. He, uh, I mean, it's just one of those deals where it's like the guy disappears and it, there does not appear to be any logical reason. He was just not, there was, you know, he didn't have any problems in his life that anybody knows of. He didn't have any financial troubles. He was doing great in school. He was, you know, he seemed to have everything to live for. You know, his family was just, they, and that's the other thing. I'm like, if you're going to commit suicide, there are way, there are easier ways that don't possibly incur the cost of a Cessna aircraft onto your <laughs> yeah. family. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So like, that's, I don't know. So anyway, that, that talking about that and the just this almost, you know, not impossible, but really improbable type of disappearance reminded me of, of one in what's known as the Bennington triangle, which is basically the, of the, of Vermont, New York sort of area. They call it the triangle because of the, you know, Bermuda triangle, everything's gotta be a triangle. Um, <laughs> but basically there's this area and I actually lived in this area in Vermont for a year without knowing it at the time, <clears throat> but the Bennington area, um, a lot of strange disappearances there, mostly people walking on nature trails. But one that's always stuck in my head is a guy. He was in his 40s or 50s, I think. And uh, he was getting onto a bus. 
he was riding a, like a passenger bus, like a Greyhound, and it was a night trip. So that, you know, it was a bunch of people getting on the bus and they were all taking it from upper New York state into Vermont. And it was a several, you know, it was a drive of several hours and there were no stops. It was a continuous, they were going from wherever they, so everybody gets on the bus, including this guy. He gets his own set. No one sits, no one sits next to him. He's got his own set of seats on the, on the right side of the, of the aisle. And he put his bag or whatever there with him. And, you know, people said they remember him just kind of leaning back and going to sleep. Well, when they got to their destination and they had not stopped on the way, that dude was not on the bus, but all of his bags were still in the seat. Yeah, that is just really weird. Like my, when I hear stuff like that, my my brain immediately goes into like, how how could he have done it? Right? How did he you sneak know, like, off that bus? Yeah, he, he, <laughs> I don't know. And it's just maybe he saw the movie Speed and he was like, I'm gonna go out and like ride under the bus for a little while. <laughs> yeah, but no, and that's the thing is like no one remembers seeing him get up or anything. You know, like they, they're like he passed, he went to sleep, and then just when they got there, he was not there. So now obviously. Probably a lot of other people were napping and stuff. It was in the middle of the night. So it's conceivable that like he like ninja down the, the, the aisle of the bus and maybe got out the emergency door without the driver noticing, which is really doubtful because that turned well, the emergency, lights Yeah, out. the alarm. And or he, that. I mean, but, and, and how did he get out? He, he couldn't have gotten out the, the bus regular doors because that's right next to the driver and the driver definitely wouldn't notice because you have to reach over and yank the lever to open that door that is right next to the driver. Uh, people... I have heard people try to say that he did something in the bathroom, but he, yeah, what did he get into the, I mean, not, there's just no way off the bus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's just really weird. And then, and, uh, I've never read the, the 411, uh, books by David Politis. Right. So yeah, that's the next step was the, the stess of the thing reminded me of the bus story, which gets into the entire 411 topic. Right. Which we've talked about quite a bit, but like I said, not I not on the show. Yeah. I haven't read, I haven't read the books. Um, but Russ has told me a, a whole bunch of the stories, and they're all very, very strange. And uh, <laughs> and we've listened to some uh, interviews with David Politis, and yeah. and it's pretty fascinating. This guy is basically making a uh, like a casebook or whatever. Yeah, um, he's built a profile, like a, a profile, like a criminal profile. Right. So like if you're investigating, if you've got a bunch of murders that that you haven't been able to solve, and then you start to notice that. They have weird similarities. Like there's the, there's always a red business card on the you know or just a plain piece of red you know something like that something strange that's similar in all these cases. That's what he's doing. That's how you put together a profile of a serial killer, right? Right. So a serial killer will have little signature things that he does, and then you'll start to see. Well, wow, look at over here in L.A. There's another killing with that same signature stuff, and you start to see these. And this is how people catch yeah. serial killers. They build a profile of them. Politis has done the same thing with missing persons cases, starting in unsolved missing persons. Right. Cases. They're all, they're unsolved. Uh, or even if they're solved, quote unquote, solved in, in that they found the person or they found like fragments of their body or whatever, like there's still a massive mystery about what happened on all these cases. So right. he's like built... a child in the mountains goes missing and they don't have any shoes and they're found like 25 miles away or something within like that. 19 hours over multiple mountains and right. like fence, crossing fences and rivers. And yeah. Children found in impossible places. So they're found, but there's like no explanation for how they could have done. Right. Have been and if they're alive, they have strange, very strange things to say or nothing at all to say. They don't remember anything at all. Or they tell you very strange stories about yeah. shining robots or <laughs> bears that gave them food and stuff. I mean, it's very weird. Or so, little girls that helped them climb the hills at night that turned out to have also gone missing in that same area. But like two decades before that... Super creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Uh, that, yeah, that one's like, 
You tell that one at the campfire, man. <laughs> Everyone was like, oh my God, yeah, she went missing two decades before. <laughs> <laughs> so, so David Politis did this thing where he, like Russ was saying, he basically made like a, a case profile, a case yeah. profile connecting all the similarities between all right. these mysterious things. And the profile is based on like what you would normally do, crime scene profile stuff. Like, what are the circumstances uh, in terms of the scene? So, like, uh, you know, where do they go missing or what are they doing when they go, you know, so boulder fields, berry picking. Uh, or in terms of the missing search, like sometimes if the body is found in a place that's been previously searched multiple times, he considers that part of the profile. Right. Right. Uh, very small children uh, is part of the profile automatically because, like, when a two-year-old goes missing in the middle of nowhere, like, just vanishes that's not, and, and there's no sign of animal attack or anything, right? So, so in my case, I was more interested in the idea of what is doing this, okay? Because, and, and if you listen to P- Politis, when people are always asking him, well, what do you think is doing? Like, is it Bigfoot, right? Is it aliens? <laughs> is it like super secret government, super soldiers? What he says is, all my data has been able to determine is that is what it isn't, and it's not a human or any series of humans because the circumstances... At least not with known technology. Right. There, it, the cir- Yeah. It isn't any kind of known human perpetrator because, like, it's not... It, people have said, like, oh, well, there are serial killers that, like, you know, are living in the parks. Well, there was one case of that at one point, like, one serial killer who was known to have taken victims in one of the national parks somewhere, but... The problem with that is this is like he's gotten he got cases from like the late 1700s up to right. now. so that kind of you know I yeah, don't think there's is, any serial killers that old. It's long game, and it's not a Sith deal where he's got an apprentice and he passes it down and an apprentice <laughs> you know. So it's it's not that, and also it's ne- it's global in scope. So like no jet setting, you know, extremely long lived serial killers with apprentices. So whatever it is, he basically says is like whatever it is. It doesn't seem to be a, a human perpetrator um, or any known animal or anything like that, right? So I was interested in that. So And when you read the cases, the impossibility of some of these disappearances is intriguing. So my list was of the attributes or abilities that the, that the perpetrator must have in order to, it, in order to all accomplish all these disappearances. So here's the, here's the, the list. It must be un, uninhibited by terrain, no matter how rugged. Uninhibited, uninhibited by rivers, lakes, swamps, mud, muck. Uninhibited by inclement weather of any kind or strength. So no matter, like, strongest snowstorms, it doesn't matter. Uninhibited by darkness. Uninhibited by extremes of heat, cold, or altitude. Uninhibited by debilitating flora defenses like cactus spines, thorns, nettles, etc. Capable of approaching to within, uh, within arm's reach of people while remaining completely concealed and undetected. Capable of completely overwhelming even the largest, most physically fit adults in seconds without making a sound or allowing the victim to make a sound. Capable of abducting full-grown adults completely silently such that people only a few meters away neither hear nor see anything. Uninhibited by weight of the person being abducted. Leaves almost no scent that search and rescue dogs can track and additionally can apparently mask the scent of an abducted human. Able to conceal heat signatures from forward-looking infrared radar uh, cams. Able to induce altered state and memory loss in human victims. Able to self-conceal completely even in open environments that are lacking any kind of cover at all. 
able to abduct hundreds or possibly thousands of people each year for the past 200 years or more without humans becoming aware that anything is happening. <laughs> able to affect domesticated dogs in some way that is not clear, perhaps to lose the, use them as a lure. Able to move about with impunity even amongst hundreds of search and rescue, National Park Service, law enforcement officers, FBI, and security, and place a victim's body in places searched many times. That's just a short list. I mean, like, I, I you know... What I really want to do to finish to flesh the list out is go back through the books that I read and like read each case and add attributes right. as I see them in the case and you know because that was all just from memory. That's just from memory, it. yeah. Like so, if I went by case by case, I can make the list really long because there are some where you're just like, how how the how the hell? <laughs> yeah, that is that is really cool. So you, you you can hear that list and you're like, okay, so that's not a person. I mean, I can't even see how that like advanced. Te- how does advanced technology help you do that? St- some of that stuff. You know, I mean, like, unless you've got, like, perfect cloaking, perfect, st- and then you're a hypnotist, and you're, you know, and then you're, like, super strong because you can carry the guy. I mean, I don't know. I just, I just don't, I don't know. It doesn't seem like tech could really help a person do this. Unless, yeah. I mean, maybe, this is why a lot of people just go straight to aliens. Because it seems like you need a large machine to do all this stuff for you. If you're in a flying saucer that could beam people up. <laughs> well, let's talk about aliens for a minute. Like, all right. Um... They real. <laughs> they real. They out there. <laughs> Shout out to y'all aliens, you know. But uh, th- there's one thing in particular that I can't remember who was saying this or what, but it was about the the age of the universe, uh, you know, the approximate age of the universe yeah. and and um, the approximate number of ah, you're planetary talking- systems that have a planet that is in the habitable zone yeah it's a form you're talking about <clears throat> there's like this formula where they figure out the probability of of life being developed and and w- like we we think of ourselves here on this planet as you know our planet's this this old or whatever i think it's called fermi's paradox okay fermi's paradox it basically is like it's a long formula that it has a bunch of variables that mean like they basically mean like number of planet number of estimated planets or stars in the universe number of stars that have planets number of planets on each individual star number of stars that will have planets that are in the habitable zone number of those that will have the, the conditions all correct for life number of those that will actually develop life number of those that will actually develop intelligent life number of those that will have intelligent life that will live long enough to make a civilization so on and so forth right. and you still end up with there should be hundreds of billions of intelligent advanced civilizations all over the universe and so fermi's and, paradox and is, many of them far older than right ours. so fermi's paradox is where is everybody that's fermi's paradox wow that is oh. so we've talked about like the possibility that we with the human race has been shielded from yeah uh, contact from contact with these things or, or open contact and and one of the ways that we arrive at that is is by looking at ancient texts that talk about uh, visitors yeah. from the heavens and how they they deal with us and like for I mean just the the plainest example is that we were created by beings that came down from the heavens mm-hmm. and in the turn in the in the story of the the Anunnaki and the Adamu we were created as workers right and some of the anunnaki looked at the human race as slaves and they did not want us to become like them and only very a very few select humans were uh, allowed to ascend 
or be taken to like into a, the heavens. Adapa, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it's it, it looks like you know if you if you if you're thinking about just space and aliens and all that, it, it, you could say that from those stories we can see that these aliens don't want the human race to achieve space flight. They don't want the human race to become part of the larger uh, community. If know, there is one, if yeah. there is one out there. And so that we're, we're like property. Yeah. And, you know, other species or aliens, alien species of intelligent life or whatever are not allowed to come here and mingle with us or give us knowledge or yeah. help us advance at all. So they're interdicted in some way. They're kept from being here. Or sometimes maybe some of them slip through, but they're like the equivalent of uh, the teenagers out for, you know, a midnight drive into the quarry or something like that. Right. You know, it's like... <laughs> and there's this thing about the Watchers. You know, the Watchers are this this uh, yeah. group that is basically charged with, you know, watching us. Yeah. Uh, for what reason? Not sure. I mean, like... Can you come up with a more creepy name for a set of, like, you know, alien beings? Like, the Watchers. <laughs> What's really creepy about that, I, whenever somebody mentions the Watchers... They're watching it, Us Tube. <laughs> some of the... Yeah. Us Tube. Us Tube. So, some of the oldest statuettes or sculptures uh, ever found are called eye statues. And hmm. I mean, like, when you... I look at them and I'm like... Watchers, they, they're like little weird figurines, but the, their their signature is they've got these gigantic eyes. Apples, uh, eyes with a bite taken out of it. <laughs> eye statues. <laughs> I was oh. like, man, that was. Oh my god, uh, I completely missed that one. <laughs> eye statues. <laughs> okay, that was dumb. Anyway. No, that was great. <laughs> I'm dumb for missing that completely. Eye statues. Some of the oldest statues we know right. are called most advanced eye statues. Eye statues. <laughs> First of its kind, <laughs> white with a single button that says yeah. "on." The eye statue seven plus. <laughs> yeah, so th I, you can look them up. They're 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 very creepy looking because they have no facial features. They just have these two gigantic eyes, um, and I always think of the Watchers when I see them. And like, and when you think of that, this in context of like these were the the, the earliest. So like the most ancient humans that we know that we're making sculptures, this is what they made first. These statues with these huge eyeballs and nothing else for a face, you know, it's just like, I'm like, Oh yeah. I'm looking at one right now. Yeah. Those are incredibly creepy. Whoa. Yeah. It's, it's actually not those, but those are similar. Let's see. Oh man, that's not an eye statue. No, it's not, but uh, they're similar. You know, it's, those, a, it's a, it's a Chinese knockoff. Is that dude is. is just high on opium. No, he's a, it's it's a Sumerian alien. <laughs> he's like, whoa, man! This is a Sumerian statue with big eyes. Uh, anyway, what are they? Um, I don't see any. There they are. That oh, is what they yes. look like, dude. Athenian owls. That's what they call. Them. Those are owls. No one knows really. Who Come on. Who would think that was an owl? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, yeah. So the the you can look them up. They're really, they're you'll rec they're crude. Okay, so these are very ancient. They're they're uh, pre pre Sumerian, pre civilization or whatever. But they're found in the same area, the Ubaid place, where they found the the snake sculptures and stuff. But these are older than that. And some of them are in Japan. Like the, if you look up the Jo the Jotun, I think they're called the Jotun culture or whatever. They made eye statues as well. So you have them in Sumer, and in Japan, 
So people all these ancient ancient peoples all over the world started making these statues with giant eyeballs. Yeah, kind of at weird. the same time. <laughs> and she's like and you're reading about the watchers and you're just like mm-hmm. dude the thinking about that makes me <laughs> uh, uh, reminds me of the the uh, paintings uh, the Native American no, petroglyphs yeah, some of those on, are creepy. on the rock walls in in Utah in in and around Moab. Yeah, let's area. talk t- go ahead and tell about those cuz those are that was wild. Dude, they're one of the creepiest ones is is just a a group of they look like sort of like people, um, but they're just wearing sh- cloaks. They they don't yeah. have legs or whatever. Their bodies are sort of uh, tapered. Shadow silhouette tapers. Yeah, yeah, dark dark silhouettes. They're they taper from from the feet. And there's not really feet. It's just this tapering thing gets wider to the shoulders, and then they have these just dark heads. They they just look like like hooded cloaked ghosts yeah because they kind of fade out at the bottom too and and some of them are like you're just looking at a flat wall and these are just flat you know just little 2d paintings on the wall but it looks like a bunch of them are standing and some of them are further back because they're a little smaller but the perspective is just right and then there's this one that's just huge and he's massive and he's got these crazy rings around his head and it's just all just looks and none of them have any uh, features they're yeah. just these silhouette shapes. Yeah. To me, it, it it just makes me think that whoever painted that witnessed so, yeah. someone, like some alien race coming down and just all coming towards him. You know, it's just like, oh my God, like what, what inspired that? Yeah. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of... For some um, reason, it made me think just of crazy the Petronus. Plato's Cave thing too. Like now I'm thinking of shadows on the wall. You know, What's the Plato's cave thing? The Plato's cave myth that that where like it was oh, yeah. it was his illustration of like you know everyone living in illusion right and you can't wake people up they have to do it themselves so you've got everybody is like they're in this cave and they're looking at the back of the the cave wall right and their uh, their entire world is there's shadows on the wall of that cave and it's it's the shadows are theirs. Right, but they're all of their interactions happen through the shadows and everything. And I'm I'm not I'm probably butchering this because I haven't read it in a long time. But the idea is, is that somebody, one guy, discovers by looking behind him that what's causing the shadows on the wall is the freaking sunrise coming through the cave entrance, and that there's this whole world out there of green, beautiful stuff in this all in the sun and everything. And like he tries to start telling like the, these shadows are just a pale come on you know, and they and they kill him. They don't want to know that shit. They, you know, they're in their world with the with the shadows. Ah, uh, yes. Right? So that's the Plato's Cave. You know, that's probably a terrible... I need to probably look at it again before... I, <laughs> that's basically the idea is you've got people interacting with something that is, uh, you know, an illusion of reality caused by the actual reality that's behind it that they've never seen. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm probably still in that state, <laughs> but... but uh... Looking back, like I, I recall being in that state in other ways. Um, You're like swan, yeah, dog. <laughs> <laughs> like, just uh, I don't know. Thinking about the the world in terms of of how we understand it or human understanding at this point, like believing that we know all of the things that we know, like. Uh, Feynman had this great illust- uh, great way to describe this thing. And it was basically about n- knowing the difference between the name of something and knowing something. Right. And in that, he, he describes this little story about when he was a child. 
and his dad taught him to notice things. And so one day he's like playing with his wagon uh, and he's got a ball in the wagon and he noticed that when he pulled the wagon, the ball would rush to the back of the wagon. And when he'd stop the wagon, the ball would then rush to the front of the wagon. So he went to his dad and he told his dad like, Hey, I noticed this thing. And he explains it. Um, and his dad says that that is, uh, or, or, well, he explains that this is what's happening. And he says, why? And his dad answers that no one knows. Right. He says that, yeah, the ball has inertia, right? Yeah. He says the general principle is that things that are moving want to keep on moving. And things that aren't moving want to keep on not moving. Right. And things (laughs) that are not moving don't want to move unless you push on them hard. Right. And that principle is called inertia, but no one knows why it's true. Right. And so he explains that his father, even though he wasn't a physicist and he wasn't educated, knew the difference between knowing something and knowing the name of something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I learned that, uh, basically Feynman just listening to that. I was just like, Oh my God, like we call this, for example, electricity. And you know, it's like th- that we call it electricity that we've given it a name or that we call this thing inertia and that we can manipulate it in some ways. Right. Like, Makes, you know, gives you sort of the impression where you take for granted that, that we know what it is, but that, we don't, we yeah. don't know what inertia is. We don't know what electricity is. Right. We don't really know what light is. Right. So when I realized all of that stuff, it was like turning around. That's right. And, and not no longer looking at the shadows on the walls, thinking I knew what was going on. Right. And it, and it opens up a whole world of possibilities that I thought, you know, were impossible. Like I, I had described how I, I had all these magnets, you know, I looked to collect magnets when I was a kid. And I always thought like, man, if I could just, you know, take these little ramagons or whatever and put these <laughs> magnets on them and put this on this pivot and make this magnet swing around and trying to make, yeah, you're trying to, I make was trying to perpetual make perpetual motion. motion. I didn't know. Don't you know? I didn't impossible? know. <laughs> I didn't know there was a term called perpetual motion, but I was working on this thing, trying to make it happen. And I remember I no, was 17th century Victorian where the salt would pay any attention to you making perpetual motion <laughs> machines. <laughs> I was, somebody was asking me what I was doing. I don't know who it was, but I told them basically the, what I was attempting to do. Yeah. I was trying to set this up to where it would just keep on going. Yeah. And they go, Oh, well, perpetual motion is impossible. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, you're, you're talking about a perpetual motion machine and it, it's, it's impossible. And I was just like, oh, and I just like put away the magnets yeah. and never played with them again. Same thing happened to me, but eventually I figured out, wait a minute. I didn't expect it to run forever. <laughs> yeah. Like forever, ever, ever. Right. I mean, like. Just until the next cataclysm. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Not even until the sun burn out. Just mm-hmm. if it just kept going for until I died, that would be good, good enough forever for me. Yeah, you know, like well, perpetual motion is impossible. Yeah, yeah. So, that, so, so something so, that will run until after the end of the universe is impossible. Yeah. So but, that's that's just like on another <laughs> tangent. Yeah. That type of knowing, quote unquote, is mm-hmm. uh, it like it kills the spirit, the 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 the. You the curiosity lose curiosity. Drive, yeah. Like there, after that point, I was just like, ah, the magnets are in a little drawer, and I just don't, I don't yeah. mess with them anymore because because what I want to do with them is impossible. Right. And so there's no more mystery in it. Where I was just, you like, get this inkling of like, wow, with these things, I think that I could make this thing. That, and then somebody's like, nope, that's impossible. And you're like, yeah. oh. And then you don't want to play with them anymore because those things can't do that thing you wanted to do with them. So you right. don't want to do anything with them. And like 20 <laughs> years later. 
I realized that like they don't even know what magnetism yeah, is. I'm down here like, hey man, yeah. magnets. Yeah. <laughs> How do they work? <laughs> so I, you know, I started. I got on the internet, and bought a bunch of magnets, and started messing with them and drawing diagrams now and like coming up with different ideas and traveling through time. <laughs> uh, but it's but it's cool. Like I like I haven't created perpetual motion, but it's it's I've learned so much stuff from actually going back and just re-looking at these things that I was told and believed that I knew what it was all about and all that stuff. And so taking another look with these eyes, uh, now that I realize that we don't really know what this stuff is, 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 uh, it's a great thing. And yeah. It's very refreshing. Very refreshing. I think and we're running up on time here. Where are we at? I can't see the numbers. Oh yeah. We're way over, way over the clock. Way over the clock. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll be back with more craziness later. Snake Bros! Welcome back to Snake Bros, Brothers of the Serpent, where we are about to discuss some impossible impossibilities and impossible blocks. Snake Bros. <laughs> impossible blocks is another term, by the way, that uh, we use to just uh, basically when we're talking about massive stone blocks that are kind of impossible some, to move, bros. Uh, impossible blocks. You'll hear it often. So I have it. Uh, I have this. I have this uh, habit of finding little bits of news that are information. I have a weird news feed that I read or whatever. And I, you know, every once in a while I find something in there or a story somewhere or whatever that I'm just like, okay, that is not possible. <laughs> and yet it happened. <laughs> and yet here we are with it happening. <laughs> and uh, what, and, and I, you know, I'll spend the next couple of weeks showing this thing to everybody. I'm like, look at this. How the fuck? What, this is not and people are like oh uh, what maybe, is, maybe what is that I'm like this, maybe these are, this is a look at this block look at that dude oh yeah do, do they were they moving it uh, yeah they were dragging it across mountains wow <laughs> <laughs> anyway so I I'll chew on these stories for for weeks and what I like to what what fascinates me about them really is to dig into and really get all of the impossible details out of it. Because like when you read the stories about them, about the block or about the, about whatever impossible thing happened, the story inevitably glosses over all of that because most people um, are kind of, they shy away from impossible things. So when you read the news story about some impossible thing that happened, you, you inevitably discover that there are large gaps, right? Where if the person was really interested in the impossibility of this, of this thing happening, they would explain to you every impossible detail about, you know, and so that's what I like to do with these stories when I chew on them. I'm, I'm like, I want to dig out every little 
thing in there that I'm like, okay, and then this, and then this can't happen either, and then this is totally impossible, right? So the, the one I've been chewing on lately is <clears throat> about something known as the devil's footprints, and it comes from uh, from Italy. Um, basically, there's, a, there's an old volcano in northern Italy, and the locals have known about this for a long, long time, but on the, the side of the mountain, coming down the side of the mountain from the top are a set of deep footprints in rock that was once a pyroclastic flow that was part of the of a, of a volcanic eruption. So we'll, I'll get into some of that later. But the point is, is that these, that you can, they don't look like you don't, you can't see, you know, toes and heel or whatever. They're just like, they're deep. Like, like think of walking through deep mud, in right? Boots. You, right. You leave these kind of holes in the, in the material, right? And you're, as you pull the foot out, it distorts it and stuff. So that's what they look like. Um, and they, and they're, you know, human size, bipedal, whatever, you know, it was bipedal and there's, they go all the way down the mountain walking on top of this pyroclastic flow when it was soft, obviously. So the locals have called it the devil's footprints because they're like, well, people can't walk on lava and this is walking down the mountain. So obviously Satan came out of the volcano <laughs> and walked down onto earth, right? So, you know, <laughs> Satan. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just like, well, that's flawed because Satan has cloven hooves. <laughs> this dude was like a regular human footprint. So for, for the longest time, archaeologists... And it wasn't Lucifer because it would have been like an S-curve. That's right. There. Yeah, that's right. It would have just been a snake trail. <laughs> But uh, snake prints. <laughs> um, archaeologists have just kind of blown this off. They're just like, eh, whatever, you know. They're not. They're probably not really human footprints because uh, it is possible. What do they think it is? Well, it is possible to get <clears throat> footprints of, say, you know, some other bipedal thing like a uh, like a flightless bird or whatever, you know, something that walks on two feet that makes deep footprints that it can then degrade oh, into wait. some I know I, I know always... I know what it is what? I just figured it out what it was a slinky <laughs> it was it was who uh... was running the slinky down the volcano <laughs> it was big volcanic slinky <laughs> and it just was blam 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 and there was and then slinky. satan was standing at the top of the volcano going go yeah. go Everyone loves a slinky, slinky, slinky. Everyone loves a slinky. Go, slinky, go. It's going to be some kind of a record. <laughs> all right. So the story was about the fact that archaeologists had actually decided, all right, we'll go take a look at these devil's footprints. So they went up the mountain and when they came back down, they were like, so they, yeah, they really are human footprints. Uh, they dated them and we just got over the dating stuff but pyroclastic flows can have organic material in them so uh because it's it a pyroclastic flow picks up the forest and everything on the side of the mountain so they can date and they dated them to about oh i think it was like thirty-five thousand years okay so we're talking about if it was a human and they're saying that they were depth like when they examined the bottom of the prints down in the hole that they that it was human they were it was a, a modern human's foot <laughs> Okay. What? <laughs> I'm just thinking about this this daredevil. He's <laughs> just like, all right, I'm gonna parachute in to this volcano and then run down in these kick-ass volcano boots. <laughs> but they but they could see the guy was wearing no shoes. I mean, he was barefoot. Okay. 
they could see the imprint of the toes and the heel and stuff down there at the very bottom of the of the of, of the prints. And they also said that it was obvious that he was carefully picking his way. He was not running. He was to each step. What they said was very deliberate, right? Uh, and it would seem that would have to be the case because if you look at how deep the prints are. But I mean, even, like. So let, if let you me, were that close to the pyroclastic flow, wouldn't it just burn you? Right. So yeah. So let me let me finish getting into the. They, so they're like, okay. So he, you know, and the and the, the footprints are clearly going down the mountain. They're not, you know, that the toes are pointed downhill. And they said that there are even a couple places where you could see slight leftover imprints of where because the the mountain side was so steep that the dude had put his hands down and also. Oh my God. All right. So they're like, yeah. So it was a, clearly a person very carefully picking his way down the mountain, and I'm like. <laughs> After a volcano? <laughs> so let's talk about pyroclastic flows. You have a volcanic eruption, which, first of all, blows the top of the mountain off. Okay. Um, a volcanic eruption generates what's called a column. Okay. The, the, the igneous column. So the, 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 the force of the, the, the gas and the, the pumice and all the, all the material coming out of the throat of the volcano is so great that it doesn't, the lava doesn't just kind of pour out and start flowing down the side of the mountain. Like some lava may do that, but that's incidental. What's really happening is that volcano is spewing a bu bunch of material under an extreme amount of pressure straight up. It's like a rocket engine. It's blowing it into space. So you'll see this, any, you look at any pictures of volcanoes going off, there's this fat, thick column of smoke going straight up from the volcano. And it, when it hit, it'll get up and hit some high level of air and start to spread out like a nuclear bomb explosion. It makes this big, uh, mushroom cloud that is called the, the 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 pillar is called the column and the reason it's a column and not just it's not smoke that thing is full of rock ash uh a bunch of different heavy gases all kinds of nasty toxic materials it's got lava it's got freaking things that look like meteors that molten boulders and you know all that is being carried up in this column and they're massive they you know they can they can weigh hundreds of millions of tons all right, but they continue to go up because the the force of the material continuing to come out of the throat of the volcano is so great that that stuff doesn't fall. It just keeps getting pushed up. So it's building an actual physical column. It's not smoke. All right, <laughs> the material is just going up or whatever, and eventually the volcano runs out of steam. You know, it's like <coughs> and it stops. The column then collapses back down on top of the mountain. This is what generates a pyroclastic flow. That's why pyroclastic flows are made of ash, dust, pumice, and a whole bunch of other stuff. All the trees on the side of the mountain. <laughs> and it's going about six or 700 miles an hour and is around 1,000 degrees in temperature. Okay. They're, they're, this is what buried Pompeii. Okay. It was a pyroclastic flow, right? The, the, it, uh, that's why you see people... You know, the, the you can see them laying in the streets. That you know, they were obviously all alive, and it was and it, it all happened all suddenly because this extremely hot ash and all this stuff just like came roaring down across the the town at six or seven hundred miles an hour and buried it under fifty yards of stuff Jeez. that then turns into rock. Okay, that's what a pyroclastic flow is. It is the collapse of a volcanic column. <laughs> so if you think of the volcano as this sort of ramp. <laughs> Because the column is going up above this pointed thing. So when the column collapses, it collapses onto this, this cone-shaped thing and just pours down all sides of the mountain in a, in a sort of a shock wave going six or 700 miles an hour. All right? It's impossible to get away from if you're... So that's what 
the footprints are in, are in the material left on the mountainside after the pyroclastic flow. So somebody was on the mountain during the column collapse. Or... Because, they, you know, well, how, I mean, how the, did they get up there? The footprints <laughs> were there after the column collapsed. Right. So, he had to walk down the yeah. mountain. So, so where are his footprints going up the mountain? <laughs> well, if they were, if, right. So here's the thing. They should be in the same layer of stuff if he came up the mountain after the column collapse right. as the layer, as the footprints going down, which means that they should be there somewhere. Yeah, unless he came to the top of the mountain from, from the air. Right. Which he would have had to travel through a bunch of smoke. Right. So if he landed on to... the volcano after the pyroclastic flow and he just landed at the peak or, or up up high or whatever and then walked down, uh, I guess that's possible. But the, and you know, like now that I think of it, every volcano, like most volcanoes today have cameras on them. Like they've, they've got scientific webcam, geological cameras and you can watch videos of them exploding and every every video of every volcano going off that I know of where you can watch the video on the internet there's weird shit flying around them people find you know there's UFOs in it uh, whatever that whatever that means they're just unidentified things that are flying around and I've I've even seen one there's a volcano there's a volcano in Mexico where a definite <laughs> long beam or streak of something actually comes down out of the sky and goes into the 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 um the mouth of the volcano like goes into it hmm. right and people are like oh it's a it was a shooting star or it was a plane flying or it was a bug in front of the camera but no because this like any of those things would if they left a streak you know they're saying well the camera's really it takes slow pictures so a, a, something moving fast will leave a streak but this thing didn't leave a streak like that where it was like a streak here and then the next streak was contiguous with that one this streak went went eh, 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 you know what i'm saying so that it was overlapping itself in the in, in the previous images which means it isn't something streaking past mm -hmm. it's a long bar <laughs> it's you know it's a, it's a solid piece of uh it looked like a streak but it was just a solid thing that was moving down very slowly yeah, and see. just buried itself into the into the lava of the volcano it just like went directly into the throat anyway that's a big tangent the point is is that these footprints are of a barefoot man. Okay, he was barefoot. <laughs> he was walking down the side of the mountain and let's, you know, let's say that somehow he was magically got up there somehow without, you know, having to walk or whatever. So he wasn't up there while the power, while the column was collapsing. Still, he was barefoot walking on material that was recently in a volcano. So yeah. soft several, stone. At least several hundred, <laughs> yeah. And it, since it was still soft, that meant that it hadn't hardened yet, which means, so after a pyroclastic flow goes down and it leaves material, you basically have this weird slurry sort of mud that is several hundred degrees in temperature. It's boiling, like, you know, it's it's just, it. and he's barefoot, and he's just kind of moseying on down, and like every foot every footstep buries him up, it, up to, the, to the shins in boiling 400 degree clay mud. No! Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> And they were like, oh, he's very carefully picking his way down. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy. Uh, like, so that's what I mean. Like, 
the story just says, so the scientists went and looked at, you know, they're like, yeah, the look was called the devil footprints because they thought he was in walking in lava, but he wasn't. Turned out he was pyroclastic flow. The scientists went and looked at it. They said, yeah, it was human footprints. And he was coming very carefully picking his way down the mountain. I'm like, so wait a minute. You skipped over all the, the devil what? is a man. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, doesn't have, he doesn't have uh, devil boots. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a boring devil. He's like, the devil comes out of the volcano. He's like, hmm, what a nice day. <laughs> yeah. Forgot my shoes. Uh... <laughs> well, almost. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what to do with a story like right, that. Right. So I just... I, I just like to, I like to think about them and, and just find every impossible thing. You know, that's what are, that's what fascinates me. There are so many impossible things in this story that, you know, they're like, well, it wasn't actually lava. It was a pyroclastic flow. I'm like, that's even more impossible. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it's like the idea of walking through soft lava when it was still molten. Well, you know, people do uh, people do firewalks. Have you ever? I mean, yeah, like, that's what that's what I was thinking while you're telling the story. Is right. like the firewalker guys they walk across and, the and like a lot of barefoot. most firewalker people are, live on volcanic islands in the Pacific. You know, so they. Oh, like, really? Okay, yeah, I, didn't know I mean, that. they they actually do it in fire pits with, with real fire, but like I assume that. And no, I don't assume this. I know this because of stories that I've read. They, the, the shamans do it walking across fresh lava fields. Like they, you but know, still this guy got to the top of a mountain while the flow was still right. It's just like, and, and yes, the, it's the volcano that makes this one impossible. Like you can't stand on a mountain. Number one, during the volcanic eruption. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> number two, during the collapse of the column. And like the, the 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 presumption here is that he waited for the column collapse to complete, <laughs> which means all of the column material fell past him and buried the mountain, and then he walked down. He was like, "Well, that that's over. I'll walk down now." <laughs> you know, he stood there while all this shit was like, <laughs> and he's like, oh, "I hate this part." You know, no, I just I, those kind of stories fascinate me, and the fact that everybody involved. All the scientists involved, and then the, the journalists involved in writing the story, none of them seem to think that this is weird. You know, the scientists are like, yeah, he was very carefully picking his way down the back. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and I, th I think that that is, so that fascinates me in multiple ways. I like all the impossibilities of the story and the fact that it definitely happened. Right, that is those two things. I'm just like, wow, look at all this stuff. Yeah. It seems impossible, but it happened, right? And then... The fact that these people are just like, seem to completely not, completely unable to acknowledge how impossible all that is. You know, they're like, well, yeah, he was a guy who walked down the mountain. I'm just like, I don't know. Uh, I love stories like that. So that's you know. that's why I collect them. And I'm always telling, you know, I'll come down here and tell Kyle. And I'm like, yeah, dude, look at this. And he's like, uh. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I, so many of these, like this one, I, I don't even know what to do with it. Like when I, like the, like the guy in the airplane. You know, that vanishes out of the airplane. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, well, I, I immediately try to come up with some, well, maybe he, you know, got out the door. Yeah, but, the, you know, it'd be so hard to do, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Right. And that one is, le but, that one's less, that one's got more wiggle room. Right. But this one has no wiggle room. Right. But my inclination <laughs> is to, like, when, it, when there's, when it's so impossible that I can't come up with some conceivable explanation, I just like, uh, I don't know what to do with it. Like, right. But, so, so what I do with it is I hold it and I'm like, this is badass. This is proof that 
that the universe is more awesome than we know. Like, I'm just like, this happened. Yeah. And it's fucking impossible, which means it's not impossible, which is badass. Like, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what I get out of like thinking about all of those stories together is like what I, what I need to do is realize that what I think is impossible is obviously an illusion. Right. Some, some like falsely imposed limitations right that that are that come about because of paradigms or whatever you know yeah yeah that's why I which, love which those... is another thing about the 411 stories you know yeah. the missing person stories there every single one of them has all, all of these impossible elements right and and it's it's challenging to just take that information in like david politis does and not try to come up with an answer like all of the other people and the <laughs> yeah. researchers try to do when they're doing it they that's just right. like and, and just like, answer. No. just like, uh, you know, an archeologist or someone looking at the great pyramid would just be like, well, you know, they did it so we can do it and right. it's doable. Beavers. It's like, yeah, it, <laughs> yes. On the one hand, walking down the mountain on the pyroclastic flow is obviously doable because there's the footprints, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> but it should challenge what we believe, you know. Yeah. That's why I like terms. to pick so, it apart. I'm like, so yeah. Okay. So somebody did it. Given, <clears throat> here's why they shouldn't have been able to, according guess to what my, we know. I guess my <clears throat> problem with it is, is that like with, with the pyramid, I can look at that and, and, and work on it. Like I can really work on like, how, how could this be done? Mm. You know, whereas like this thing, I'm just kind yeah. of, the I'm po- just kind of stuck with like, it was done and there's no way for me to figure out how. <laughs> yeah. The point and of these so, stories to me are not to figure anything out, right. but just to like, it is to, to hold it and be like. Here is something that cannot be explained. That's that's part of my nature, where, where like <laughs> I hold something, I want to take it apart. I want to mm-hmm. look at, I want to look at all the yeah. things and, and figure out how it works. And there, you know, like you hand me a brick, and <laughs> the brick does some like, amazing stuff, and like it's made out of a yeah. bunch of black boxes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this brick makes pianos disappear. <laughs> I'm just like, uh. And, and there's, it's all it is is a brick. Where's the actual piano disappearing part? It's in this black box that you can't open. Yeah. Shit. So I'm just like, okay, well, I guess the, the pianos disappear with this brick, but I can't take it apart and figure out how to do it. I'm going to have to go look at something else for a while. I... But just never forget that there is a brick that disappears pianos. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yes. And that's a good point. So I'm, I'm like, that's why I'm pointing. Because, the, I'm, that's why I'm pointing this out that yeah. I that I think this way because I realize that thinking this way is is not necessarily the right way to do it. Like I need to keep those things in mind. I do need to consider them. I I chase these kind of stories. Like okay, if I was going to try to put it in a in a sort of a constructive way, I would say that these stories help me have an open mind to. Otherwise, what we like, okay, so when I'm looking at something and people are like that, that's, that's not possible. I'm like, well, how do you know? Like, you know, yeah, it, what do you, how do you know what's not possible and what is possible? I like these stories because they constantly remind me that I don't know what is and isn't possible. Right. Yeah. That's and so good. when I'm looking at other stuff that other people would just totally reject because they're like, dude, that's just not, I'm just like, well, uh, you know, like maybe, maybe we don't know how it happened, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Yeah. It does the same thing for me. I, I, I just, I was realizing that like on a case by case basis, <laughs> I just, when, when there's nowhere You're for like, me to go with I'm it, I'm just, just like, eh, here. Just, uh, let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about gravity. I can maybe think about stuff that can do something yeah. with that. That uh, I think Michael Cremo calls that the, um, it, it, uh, he calls it a, like a, 
it's a type of bias, but it isn't it isn't like a you know political bias or a confirmation bias or whatever. It's that he's he's like he's like when you don't know what to do with the information, when you ha can't categorize it, you can't it doesn't fit in anything you understand. It goes into this like it goes into this box that doesn't get connected to anything else, which means you don't often access that information because they don't you don't you're not never reminded of it because it doesn't connect to anything you know, and so that that's the forget box. It's like this. <laughs> Right? Yeah. You don't put it in there to forget it on purpose. You're just like, right. oh, this is really interesting, but I don't know what to do with it. But then since we live in context, nothing ever reminds you of it because you didn't connect it to anything. Right. So you just, ne you know, like when I, well, like for instance, I asked mom once out of the blue, I was like, so have you ever seen like a UFO? And she told me this amazing story. And she was like, I haven't thought about that in years. Why? Because she never sees anything to remind her of it. And yeah. when I asked her though, she all, the memories came flooding back because that was the first time that anything in 20 years had connected anything to that story yeah was my question you know man how many times have i done that huh? <laughs> right how many how much stuff is in my where is my forget box <laughs> <laughs> shit i don't even know where it is <laughs> i must have put that in the forget box <laughs> i've got stacks of forget boxes <laughs> that's right so that's uh that's the thing about mysteries that's why i collect them because they're they're, they're, they don't expand your understanding. They just expand the possibility that you're willing to entertain. You know, they, they push the boundaries of things you're willing to entertain by, by saying, look, here's something else that you don't understand that definitely happened. <laughs> yeah. And you know, there's, there's that phrase like, um, what is it? Well, now I can't remember the phrase, but okay. So have faith or if you believe it, you can do it, right? right. Like that, that, that idea. Mm -hmm. So, if, so believing that a bunch of things are impossible or that we know that they're all impossible, right? It's, you can extrapolate that, that you're, you'll never achieve the impossible if That's you don't right. believe that it's possible. Who was it? Was it because you won't even try or you, you know, yeah, there was so, some, there was some ancient Greek philosopher. I don't, I can't remember which one it was right now, but he said, if you don't, expect the unexpected you will never find it yeah that just makes me think about uh magic right specifically like like people think that magic is a myth um it's impossible to do anything without actually doing it mm -hmm. uh, blah 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 but i don't know just for me one of the things that i've kind of gotten rid of one of my biases that I've gotten rid of is that, that those types of things performing magic is impossible. Right. And so I started to, with that, I can actually tinker with it. Like I can, mm -hmm. I can take it apart and, and look at all these various aspects of the legends that we have of magic and all this kind of stuff and think about, well, how could those things have happened? Um, and even if, if I can't explain it in a, in a, using physics or, or some, some known, you know, understandable science that we've worked out. Uh, there's still the possibility that maybe there's something with consciousness that has to do with it, uh, which we don't understand consciousness. And, uh, so starting to, to believe the, that, that it's possible to do this type of thing, then you can begin to actually experiment with it. Why would you ever experiment with something you believe is impossible? Right. It's like, I'm going to go out and do impossible experiments again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just, just that, that one change of, of mind for me has resulted in a lot of like pretty cool 
things yeah. that have happened. Um, yeah, so I do. The, I, th- this is this is kind of me doing that same thing, but on a, I don't I don't sit down and actually start doing lab stuff like you do. Most most of my things is like I'm 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 looking I'm researching information, and so this helps me in the same way. Like this continually, these types of stories continually remind me not to discard things just because they look impossible. Yeah. But I'm doing research, you know, like that whole Tatra project. I never would have shown you that had I not already read a bunch of stories where you're like where you where I found a bunch of information where I'm like, wow, that is, that is crazy, you know? And like, but once you come across enough of that, you start to look at these and you're like, okay, so there's a lot of these crazy stories. Yeah. You know? And so you, you begin to, it begins to normalize it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So impossible stories are great. (laughs) They push the boundaries of the possible. Right. Yeah. And that ties into pretty much all of this stuff that we, we discuss uh, slowly building on all of the, uh, yeah, you have to build up a, you have to build up a tolerance to, to the impossible. <laughs> right. And then you can really like go, you know, look at all these now what that are possible things to, to explain this. And that's when connections, you know, for me, I start making connections across all of this stuff. Like, man, you know, the, this ancient text is saying this and, and this, phenomenon just took place or this unexplained thing happened which sounds a lot like this other thing that's mm-hmm. a, apparently a legend that no one believes is really true or whatever and uh it's it's fascinating right i what think about this let's say let's just take take for take for granted for this for the sake of argument now that there isn't such a thing as something impossible that there is no such thing as an impossible thing in, impossible. in this universe. <laughs> <laughs> that, that any, uh, I mean, like how many how many ancient sages have said this <clears throat> that there is nothing you cannot do if you believe you can do it. That kind of thing, right? <clears throat> Possible impossibilities are the rule <clears throat> as opposed to the exception. Except that we have built all these sort of cultural standards and everything, and like all of us have these giant. Areas where we're like, nope, can't do that. That's impossible. Right. This doesn't work. That's not, you don't even try that. Right. So we're, we've sort of encased ourselves in cages of, of what we believe is possible and not possible. And if we start with the assumption that like there actually isn't anything that is impossible, that that is the real case, that the, the actual case of the universe is that nothing is impossible for a conscious mind in this universe. Right. Then how do we get from where we are to there? <laughs> you have to start chewing through the, the cage, right? You have to dig the tunnel to the to the to the and that's what I'm doing with these stories, is like trying to widen my my cage. Like, okay, so I thought previously that it was impossible for a dude in barefoot to walk down a freaking boiling hot mountain <laughs> after a volcano. Now I no longer think that, even though I don't understand how it worked. <laughs> Somebody fucking did it. Yeah. <laughs> That is really cool. Yeah. I could probably come up with a pretty long list of things that I at one point thought were impossible for me to do that once I got rid of that assumption, I was able to do it. Right. And so like, and why, why should I limit that? Like, why should right. I put limits <laughs> on? You're like, well, that's impossible. And then you actually do, you're like, wow, I was able to do that. But that next thing is totally impossible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, that's yeah. So exactly, that's why I love these stories because they, especially when they come out of you know they come out of left field. You don't you don't expect some guy walking down a mount, uh, volcano barefoot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know that's not even something you would consider, but it just pushes the boundaries of the possible. All right, so well, it may seem impossible, but we've already reached our <laughs> next break point. Wow. Unless you were going to make a very awesome point. No, I was about to move to the next subject, but that's we should do the break first. All right. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break. Grab it out. Snake bros. <laughs> Snake break. Welcome back to Brothers of the Serpent. Snake bros. Slithering familial conversationalists. <laughs> We wanted to uh, use this last segment to talking about uh, one of our terms. One of our terms, which is free lunch. Right. Not not really ours. I mean, you know, people have used it, but uh, I mean, there's the Tanstaffel. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? Well, but sometimes there is a free lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I think I think we developed this because I was I pointed out I was like I, I it struck me one day that I was like actually everything we do is about looking for the free lunch. Like that's, that's, that's how we do everything. Right. You think about something as simple as getting food. That animal over there is a free lunch. You didn't have to build that material. Right. He built it by, you know, there's this biological process that builds the freaking sandwich for you. Basically, you know, not the sandwich, but the meat. And so you have to do a a couple of things. You got to get a rock. Right. You, and you basically got to go get the meat, a spear, <laughs> and you just have to go get it, and that's your free lunch. Right. So, and and there, it just so happens that there's like a geological process that results in something that you like. You can hit it a couple of times, and it makes a really sharp edge easily. But that's a free lunch. Yeah. You don't have to. You, can, you just. Break you don't it. have to build rocks. Right. You don't have to build rocks. You don't have to sharpen something. You just break the rock, and it has a sharp edge. Right. Naturally, that's a, those are free lunches. Yep. So when we were talking about perpetual motion and Russ was saying like, I don't mean forever. (laughs) Uh, So we kind of apply the same concept. Like, like if you could build an engine that, that generated power or a lot of power after you put all your time and effort and knowledge and everything into it, it wasn't free. (laughs) Right. But if the engine is extremely efficient, then you can, you know, you get a couple sandwiches out of it. Yeah. You, that, that's what we're calling a free lunch. So it's, it's, uh, well, the free lunch, basically the free lunch concept is you're looking for shortcuts past right. very large amounts of work. Right. So like the animal, again, you don't have to build that protein that the meat is made out of atom by atom. It's constructed for you, you know, conveniently by the biological process. That is a free lunch, practically. Right. <laughs> so Just Russ, ask anybody trying to synthesize meat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Russ was uh, a, a while back talking about, you know, making a, um, a hydrogen generator, basically, um, using the sun or whatever, using um, electrolysis. And you can do that with solar panels. Yeah. So all day long, the sol- the sun, you know, hitting the solar panel, creating an electrical charge in salt water. Right. So uh, continuously generating hydrogen. You can generate hydrogen. You can collect that hydrogen by building a system that will just collect it and then... Compress it and or whatever. Compress it. it or, yeah. 
And, and then so, you burn as needed. So you haven't really busted your ass all day producing hydrogen. You built it one time and it's just making hydrogen every day. Right. And the sun is burning for free. Right. That's that's a free lunch <laughs> right there. Right. So then you could take that hydrogen and burn the hydrogen and get a, a lot of energy, a portable energy source. Right. So, but, but you bring this up, you know, yeah, you know, you can make hydrogen using electrolysis and then and people are immediately poo-poo it saying, well, you can't get more energy out of the hydrogen that you put into right. making yeah. Yes, but I didn't have to make it. The sun did that using this solar panel right. that someone else made. Fortunately, I'm not paying for the sun. <laughs> right. <laughs> Free lunch. Yeah. So we, we like to think about that. Um, and I, for one, had this idea uh, because I work on AC systems, mainly in my car, because I've hit so many deer and destroyed my AC system so many times I've had to learn how an <laughs> entire you, AC system works. You're talking works. about air conditioning, not, not alternating current. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's I'm sorry. My air conditioner. Yeah. So I've learned how uh, air conditioners work. And uh, it's, it's a pretty simple process, really. It's using uh, phase change of, of a fluid uh, into a gas to cool... To cause it, yeah, to induce extreme cooling. Ev evaporative cooling, right? So when, when a liquid, like when you put a pot of water on the stove and you turn it on and the water gets hot and starts boiling, what's actually happening there is the, the, the phase change from the water turning into a gas is cooling that liquid. That's why you can't raise the temperature of water above 212. Yeah, at sea level. Right at now. sea level. Uh no matter how hot the stove gets, as long as that water is boiling, it's staying at, at 212. Right. Um, and then, and that includes the, the, the pan that you're, that you're boiling it in like that, the, the surface of the metal inside that's touching the water is staying roughly about 212 until all the water's gone. And then the pan will get so hot that it melts after yeah. you forget, you know, you're boiling your water Burn for your water. eggs. Yeah. <laughs> it smells like melting metal in here. Right. So, uh, I was thinking about a free lunch using this this principle because I learned about uh, old older types of refrigerators were used ammonia, whereas nowadays and a flame. It's weird, right? Yeah, nowadays <laughs> uh, air conditioning systems use freon, and there's a bunch of different types. Uh, thanks to the EPA, we've had to develop a whole bunch <laughs> because they're all deadly. So that one gets made illegal, and then we, we get a new one. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, freon is is the the liquid we use now but back in the day they used ammonia which has a totally different boiling temperature than freon and to get the the ammonia to boil instead of instead of just compressing it and letting it see freon would boil at at normal room temperature whereas the ammonia you had to heat it so they would actually put a, a propane or uh, kerosene or whatever heater. Like a pilot flame. Pilot flame would just light on the bottom of a little bowl that had the, the ammonia in it. And that would cause the ammonia to boil. And when it changed to a gas, that gas absorbed lots of heat and, and made you know the, the pipes that flowed through extremely cold. And you blow air across those pipes and you've got a refrigerator. <laughs> So I was thinking that all of these different materials have different boiling temperatures 
uh, different pressures and all this kind of stuff. And it seemed possible to me that you could uh, come up with a, a series of different liquids or different materials that you would you would cause to go through this process where one, the, the boiling temperature is high, the other, the boiling temperature is low, and perhaps put it in such a, a sequence where you could get a, a lot more energy out of a chain reaction through multiple different uh, substances. Right, and then it would also come all the way back around to begin the cycle again. Right. You use yeah. the one at the very end of the chain to cause the the one that you turn to a gas to go back into a liquid. Yeah. Which is possible. Anyway, this these these ideas are are free lunch ideas. You know, we like <laughs> to think about those. And if anybody out there has any free lunch ideas and and yeah, let us know. Yeah, and let and us know. Well, what I found really is just the concept of of the free lunch helps a lot. Cuz if you're if you set out to like you know, I want to I want to make a some kind of power generator that that puts out more energy than I have to put in to keep it going. Well, that's one way to think about it. Uh, or if you're like, I want to make a perpetual motion machine that doesn't have to go to the end of the universe, just needs to go for a long time. That's a, another sort of abstract way to think about it. But the, thinking about it in terms of I'm, what I'm looking for is a free lunch. I'm looking for some shortcut past the, this energy problem, right? And the shortcut will be based on the, the way different materials react to different things. And if I can get the right sequence of materials doing these, these reactions, I should get a cycle that goes around and around and around. And in doing so, generates enough excess energy for me to pull off the system while without shutting it down. And then I can use that energy. Right. And, and that's what uh, Nikola Tesla was doing. I mean, he was looking for uh, better sources of power and better sources of energy than what they had at the time. And almost everything that he was attempting to do, people thought was impossible. Yeah. And they poo-pooed it, and then he would build it, and it would work. And <laughs> just blow people away. And uh, well, he, he achieved the essentially the free lunch thing and so many of his inventions, which now we don't consider it a free lunch. Right. <laughs> but it was in his time. <laughs> because what it cost people to get... It, not even close to what the the stuff that he invented was able to do was uh you know far far more than what we deal with today right and we can we can using tesla's inventions we can use water falling basically in a river downhill <laughs> to that's a free lunch power all of our houses and lights and, and microwaves yeah. and that water is falls down that that hill and then you know, runs off into the ocean, and then is, the sun evaporates it, breaks, like draws it way up into the sky, where it then rains in a higher place, which then flows down the river, which then falls down the mountain, and like it's a free. That's lunch. a free lunch. That's a free lunch because all the up. work is done of, of moving the water back up to the top is done for you automatically. That's right. the free lunch part. So another idea that I had for a free lunch was using that very principle. Like we we see, I was thinking about a hydroelectric dam, and and really that is just water falling. Yeah. And we're using water, the water falling to, to generate power. But what Russ just described is a process that we can actually enclose. So you could imagine, say, a big water tank, very, very, very wide water tank, but very shallow and a black bottom yeah. and a glass top. And in the daytime the sun would heat that pool up so much that a bunch of that water would evaporate. 
and you the the gas could rise up a, a tower into a tower which you could build basically an insulated tower that becomes a rain room so the tower stays cool and the water beads up in the tower and and collects into a vat way up high and then that water is channeled down a pipe that runs through a small turbine yeah that generates power so you don't have to be near a river <laughs> you just have to get water to the place and and build this chamber that's basically uh, imitating the cycle that happens naturally every single day right and you could have hydroelectric power in your backyard for example <laughs> yeah. and you i mean obviously you'd have to build one of these things on a, on a, on a large scale, the larger scale that you built, the, the more energy you'd be able to get out of it, the more free lunches you'd be able to get. So that's the <laughs> kind of stuff I like to think about. I like to, another one, just throw it out there. Um, I was looking at my compass and I'm holding my compass in my hand and I start spinning it around and that needle, there's enough force in, in the, the electromagnetic force of the earth to, keep that needle pointing north even while I'm like rotating the compass as fast as I can in my hand or south when it's or south when I reverse the polarity with my as I put it in the same pocket as some huge powerful magnet that I bought yeah then it didn't work as well because the almost almost got lost and died that day Russ busted out his phone and was like no 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 north is this I'm like no dude this compass your phone's all messed up this compass is badass yeah so anyway, I, I, I'm not going to describe it in detail, but I basically came up with an idea of using that, that very weak but constant force um, with of Earth's magnetic field, of Earth's magnetic field to, that, to spin a propeller that uh, when, when one of the propeller blades is just aside from south, slightly degree off from south it it comes out into a, like there's a glass top on it and the sun can charge a solar panel that's on it which charges an electromagnet which is then pulled to north so the propeller pulls around the other propellers are in shade the, the shaded part of the structure so they're not in the sun but once that propeller that's in the sun reaches north immediately it goes under the shade and the next propeller is now out visible to the sun and it becomes charged and keeps pulling it north and so with a bearing that's good enough you could get this you just set this thing out there and it would begin to spin and it would continue to spin faster and faster and faster maybe the acceleration would be very slow but if it was heavy enough and it had enough inertia you might be able to draw some power off of it it would be a simple thing to build just to test it for fun right free lunch yeah that's what we're looking for here so, one yeah. of my, my favorite Tesla stories is the one where he, the journalist follows him up the mount up, uh, I guess where they they were at that mountain in Colorado, um, Pikes Peak. I don't know. It's called Pikes Peak. It's, it's not the one where he has Polly's the, Peak is he the one we have the, here, right? That's Polly's Peak. Yeah, is, we have Polly's Peak right, here. Right, so it's Pikes Peak in, in Colorado. Uh, yeah, and it's it's a big giant granite mountain in Colorado, and like he. He has these two, what are they called? They were like automatic guitars or something like that. It was, there was some weird thing that we don't, we don't really have now, but they were basically like stringed instruments that you could kind of program to play. I think it was a, a thing where you, or you could poke it. You yeah, push, keys push keys that play chords on the thing. Right. So he had two of these and he had spent the, the, the journalist like talked about how like te before they left, Tesla had spent a lot of time like 
very carefully tuning these things perfectly with each other, right? So that they were just perfectly in tune with each other. And then he and then he gives one to his friend, and that guy goes up the mountain on the opposite side. So then Tesla and the journalists go up the mountain on the uh, you know on the opposite side from the friend. So they're they have four miles of granite between them when they get to the top because the top the very top of, of, of the peak is just like it's solid granite. So, and they get up there and. <clears throat> Uh, the, the friend had instructions to somehow connect the, 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 the journalist isn't clear on how this is being done because he watches Tesla do it and he's like, yeah, the, he basically is connecting, plugging the, the instrument into the mountain somehow. He's got wires coming off of its output and he's connecting them to the granite and the, the friend is doing the same thing on the other side. And the friend is a musician. So once they're done, Tesla very carefully sets his instrument down on the ground and him and the journalist just wait, and eventually his instrument begins to play this song that his friend is playing on his guitar on the other side of the mountain through four miles of granite, and somehow that those those resonances are being transmitted. And it, this blew the reporter's mind. He was just like, "Oh my god!" You know, like <laughs> it's somehow it's being transmitted through four miles of granite and through the wires and into Tesla's, and it's playing the same song that his friend is playing on the other side of the mountain. Uh, that was just a great story, like that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, who thinks of that? Like, I could plug this into this mountain. And... <laughs> yeah, and what he what he was testing was, I believe, I'm, I'm not sure in this story, but uh, mechanical resonance, right? Basically, through through the earth. Yeah, and you have to have you know, obviously tuned very very precisely. So, yeah, I, I just know. wonder what he was transmitting with. Like, what were the wires for? I don't remember. I'd have to look up that story and see exactly what was going on. But I know that he worked on a... He was working on uh, what he called his mechanical oscillators. Right. uh, Which were basically like a piston moving back and forth very rapidly inside of a a cylinder. And he, he basically built this ingenious piston that is so, so very simple uh, that when you when you put compressed air into the cylinder, uh, the piston at rest is in the center of the cylinder and you would have to jog the cylinder to one side to get the piston to, to, to slide to one end, which would compress air in one side of the cylinder and pull a vacuum in the other. But, but once you got that initial motion going, the piston would want to kind of wobble back and forth, but he would add compressed air to it and there was an outlet. So the compressed air would go in and keep when, when the piston was on one side, it charged the side that the piston was closest to and pushed it the other direction. And, and the, the motion of the piston passing uh, the orifices into the cylinder caused the pressure to then change to the other side that the piston was approaching and then pressurized that. So it, it kept this piston oscillating back and forth and back and forth. And he could get it uh, what, he, what he called a constant period. In other words, that the frequency was very, very constant and exact. So it would not, it wouldn't get faster or slower. It would remain at the same frequency. Right. Uh, so he could finally tune them, and it was fairly small. Uh, once he described one of them that was small enough to fit in his coat pocket, but he could take this thing, and and basically bolt it or or uh, fix it to a structure or a stone or, or whatever, and sit there and fine tune it until he until he got the piston to 
resonate or oscillate at the resonant frequency of whatever structure he had put it on and begin to tra- channel that vibration throughout. <laughs> In one case, he did it on, on a, a steel building that was being built and got the whole freaking steel erection humming to the point that it, it scared the workers that were st- that were actually up there working on it and they yeah. came down. They were just like, oh. <laughs> and uh, he, he even hey, claimed... By the way, we have a little vibration to you down here, but up there... It's yeah. swinging way back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And just from from testing that this this his mechanical oscillators in multiple different scenarios, he he deduced that he could build one of sufficient size and bolt it to the earth, you know, in a specific place, like like on a mountain of granite or whatever. Yeah. And and tune it to a frequency that was. Um, some harmonic of the earth's resonant frequency and be able to send that vibration throughout the entire world. And thereby you, you could then take that mechanical oscillation vibration, which, which, you know, in, in at certain frequencies, humans wouldn't necessarily be able to hear it if it was below audible tone and you wouldn't be able to feel it, but you could put the same device anywhere on the planet and bolt it down to the ground. And the one that you're using power to move would channel that vibration into the other and the other would begin to move the same. Hmm. So using that resonance, uh, he could pick up the energy anywhere else in the world. And resonance is interesting because it is a free lunch. Like you can, you can get with a, with a very small amount of energy, a very large thing resonating that that is what they call sustain, right? And sustain is a is a free lunch <laughs> because you can draw energy off of something that has sustain without sufficiently deadening the resonance. So, right. Anyway, that's really cool stuff. We'll probably uh, talk quite a bit more about Tesla in future podcasts. Uh, Russ did a lot of research on his wireless power system. We both have looked into that quite a bit and we're definitely going to do some stuff on that uh in we've the done future. some experiments on that too and some other things he's done as well yes <clears throat> tesla is my hero just <laughs> know it birds <laughs> <laughs> anyway that's gonna wrap it up for uh brothers of the serpent podcast number three number three tres so thanks for listening hope you enjoyed it see you next time see you next time no wait and puzzle box we will see you next Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com code program.